Standing there alone, the ship is waiting. All systems are go. Are you sure? Control is not convinced, but the computer has the evidence. No need to abort. The countdown starts. Five, four, three, two, one. Third degree burn is go. Welcome to a long overdue new episode of Third Degree Burn. We are still Third Degree Burn, right? It's been so long, I thought maybe we'd, we'd changed our name. Well, I, well, Fourth Degree was taken over. Fourth Degree. I am Tim Elliott, and as, with me, as always, is my uh, fellow podcaster, Brian Hughes. Hello, 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 hello. I, I owe you all a lot of the hellos. So what's going on? Uh, busy, just been... You know, life life just got in the way. We've this has been, uh, it's been about three months since I think three or four months since we put a show out, and we just between the both of us, just you know, uh, our jobs and life and family and you know, and a, they, lear- and a learning curve too. And, yeah, a learning, I, a learning curve. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got a big apologies to everybody for my inability to our to uh, get our last show put out because it's not out yet, and uh, hopefully I can uh, you know get some something done, maybe get a little kibitz from. Some friends here, hint, hint, and uh, you know, get get the the Doctor. No, it's not Doctor McCoy. It's uh, crew it's Star crew. Trek yeah. crew uh, out, and uh, at least it'll sound like a podcast. Uh, we'll see. Oh, I'm sure it'll sound great. Yeah, but you know, I, I mean, the thing is, both of us have been experiencing a lot in life uh, these last couple months. Uh, I know you've been incredibly busy in your job. My job. Uh, we had a you know. So we had a tragedy. Our dog passed, mm-hmm. which kind of uh, threw us for a loop because uh, it was kind of unexpected. And just it's just it's it's sometimes it's hard to find time to you know if if you I can understand now with people that do solo podcasts like it's like oh I can do it anytime I want to. It's hard sometimes to coordinate between the two of us. Like, well, can you do it now? No, I can't do it. Can you do it, or it's too late, or you know sometimes you come home you're just too darn tired. Uh, but you know that's that's everybody knows that. I mean, it happens. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, and and things in in my life have also been crazy. As you know, that uh, I've been doing uh, shows with Scott McGregor, uh, Fear you know Fear the Walking, Walking Dead, Dead cast. Uh, we're going to be doing um, a pre-show to the premiere of Walking Dead. That's this Sunday, right? Uh, that comes this Sunday. We're going to yeah. start. We're going to record tomorrow night a show. Of our thoughts, our what we're anticipating, what we're expecting, what we you know what we're gonna what we're gonna give our best guess as to you know who's the victim at the uh, hands um, of Lucille and Egan. Um, but you know, in 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 that, it's not just me and Scott McGregor. My wife has gotten very involved in that's podcasting. Great. That's great. Uh, she's she's a part of that as well, and she wants to you know she wants to do other shows. Though so, you know, I, I don't know. 
you know, she hasn't sit there and, and, and figured any one thing that she really wants to do. She likes jumping on these shows and recording them. But if she wants to do something herself or something between the two of us, I don't know yet. We haven't, we haven't quite figured that out. And of course, getting the time to be able to do it, uh, is, is also, uh, difficult that's because that's, that's difficult. Yeah. Well, she has gone back to work herself. You know, she had been, uh, disabled for a number of years and she'd finally been given permission by her doctor to go back to work. And so she's taken up a part-time job right now, uh, working at a uh, clothing store. I won't mention the name. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so she's, you know, she's putting in, you know, a couple hours here and there a week. And, and e- even that is, you know, it's like it, it puts a, a strain on, on recording the, the, the fear of the walking dead cast. Mm-hmm. Cause we'd had to reschedule it a couple times because just to get everybody, uh, you know, on at the same time, because it's not just Scott and us. There's also Professor Allen and uh, Serotonin. Oh, that's who, cool. Uh, you know, we, everybody tries to participate. And they brought in Mike Zumo last week uh, as well. So, uh, you know, he's uh, been doing those Man of Steel uh, podcasts uh, where he's going over the uh, uh, Man on Screen podcast where he's going over Superman uh, from the very beginning, from the Fleischer cartoons to the oh, – okay. uh, He's, the he's Kirk, covering the Kirk, yeah the Kirk Allen serial Republic serials and now he's on I think season two of the George Reeves um, series. Oh, he's going to kind of cover. Is he covered just screen and TV, or is he going to cover all? Uh, he's he's covering screen and TV because he covered the Fleischer cartoon, so I'm sure he will cover the Superman adventures that you know the Bruce Tim stuff eventually. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff to get, get through over the years. I mean, he's got. After Adventures of Superman, you get your Superman movies, and you've got your Lois and Clark. You've got Superboy. I don't know if he's going to cover Superboy. I'll have to ask him. I don't know. You'd have to find Superboy. I don't know if it's out on disc or not. I think I think that they have to be available. They're probably available at least through the Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, but again, demand. viewing them, golly, you know, just trying to view all the the George Reeves stuff, I'm sure, would be difficult. Yeah. Now you can get the Fleischer stuff anywhere for five bucks. Easy. Yeah, that's. I think that's maybe public domain by now. Oh yeah, it's been public domain for quite a while. Um, I mean, even back when when I was in college, you could get a videotape of that for five bucks. Yeah, and it would have ten to twelve of those on there. And of course, it wasn't the best uh, quality. video qual- quality. I've always been trying to find those in the best video quality. And I, and I kind of stopped my search about 10 years ago uh, before Blu-ray came out. So now I'm kind of curious if there's any, you know, high, high, high definition remasters. I don't know that, that that certainly deserves a nice Blu-ray treatment, doesn't it? Yeah. You would think, but then again, whoever's going to do it, golly, you know, there, there, there's some tough thought in that on the legality of doing it, even though it's public domain. When you do a remaster, and what do you remaster? Do you remaster from a DVD? Do you remaster from some thirty-five? Uh, you know, I think when they remaster, they have to do it from a print. If I, yeah. if I could be mistaken, but I think that's they actually have to have uh, an actual. Because I know to do high definition, you have to do. But would they have that in the Warner Brother archives? I don't know. Or, if it doesn't exist, that maybe why it's not out there. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Golly, I'm so curious on this. I hope somebody is listening. Uh, you know, knows the answer to that maybe Mike Zimmo knows the answer. I could probably ask him as well. Or Michael, uh, Michael Bailey might know. Michael Bailey might know, yeah. So because he probably owns you know, it if it's out there. Yep, yep, yep. Golly, yeah, he's a completist, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Or, or, I, 
I, I see. I'm not a completist, and I'm not a, a hoarder. You know, I, I, you you see me sell some of my collection. Yeah, I bought some of your collection. Yeah, you bought some of my collection. Yeah, and uh, you know, you know, it's like I'm sitting there looking at my collection now, going, you know, everything that's up there right now, most everything that's up there has sentimental meaning to me. You know. Yeah. And so selling any more of my collection would be, you know, difficult at best. Well, I can't, uh, I can't afford to be a completist. No, me either. I, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that I, I can't even afford to, you know, I, I'm sitting there trying to figure out how I'm going to afford to go see Doctor Strange. And then what's the other movie that's coming out right after that? We got two big, two big movies coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Doctor Strange and... Um, yeah, Strange is like in two weeks. I don't know. It's, it's, I'm drawing a blank. I don't. I went to the movies on Saturday, and I don't. Of course, I didn't see any previews. Oh, Rogue One. Oh, was that that soon? I thought that was December. Well, still, that. Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah. it's it's a consideration. Uh, you know, having a son, and you know, Beth having not worked for a long time, I make decent money, but still, I am you know really counting my pennies these days. Uh, trying to be able to do anything and everything, and you know, and talk to medical bills and stuff like that. You know, things just get crazy. Yeah. And see, I'd like to go see Jack Reacher, but I'm not going to see it in a the theater. I'm going to have to wait. And then there's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. You know, I, I <laughs> these are all things I want to see. Yeah, I've heard that's going to be expanded now to five movies. Yeah. So, well, you know, again, you know, it, it looks like because J.K. Rowling was never happy with the deal that she had on her books. That and again, you know, being a billionaire, I, I don't understand that. But <laughs> um, she, so so she's going to stay more involved, I guess, in things like this and the plays and such, rather than you know putting out new new books in the Harry Potter world. Well, it probably gives her more control. It's probably about control, not money. My I, guess. I, see, I don't see how that can be. I mean, unless you're going to be like George Lucas, and we know what happens when you do that. You know, you're in a position where nobody will say no to you. You know, it, 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 you know, Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys, George Lucas with Star Wars. And now what's going to happen with J.K. Rowling, you know, if she doesn't have somebody to keep. I, I mean, again, it could be the greatest thing ever. I could be completely wrong here. But usually what happens when you get somebody who controls something so totally is that they end up straying away from what it is that everybody loves about it in the first place. Or they just, I think with Lucas, it's, and I'm not a Lucas basher, but I think he changed as a person, and that's reflected in the films he wanted to make. And because he he had he was at the level where he could make exactly the film he wanted to, like you said, nobody was either gonna steer him away for that or tell him no. And it just hap that just happened to be those films were not in line with what the fans wanted. Right, but you know, again, you know, when you look at when you look at his early work, whether it was THX Woman Three Eight or American Graffiti, you know uh, now THX I think was was one of those where he was able to do whatever he could do within the framework of the budget, but he had some good talent there working with him, mm -hmm. and he created something very esoteric and very heavy-handed on its message. And, and when he made American Graffiti, it looked like he was really dipping into his own experience so heavily uh, unrequited love or whatever you want to call it from the Richard Dreyfuss character. Cause I'm assuming that was where he was uh, associating himself. Well, there's probably a combination of him and 
the Ron Howard character? No, I would say more because he was, you know, he was such a a, a gear a gearhead. You know, he loved mm-hmm. um, driving, uh, you know, racing cars. So, but I, I think you're right. Probably American Graffiti is probably his most personal film. Right. Right. And you know that the of course American Graffiti's got that one thing going for it because uh, I think it was one of the first movies that made use of a uh, popular soundtrack. You know, it was music that was popular in its day, and so therefore bringing in so much of it with Wolfman Jack and all the yeah. different fifties music and sixties, you know, whatever playing there, um, it gave you know of course the audience of the time that nostalgia feeling that you get now when you watch movies like Boogie Nights or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, Almost yeah. Famous or you know any movie where they sit there and they grab from nostalgia music. I mean, you can t- look at the John Hughes films and he knew exactly where to sit there and input an old song, whether it was Otis Redding or whatever. Yeah, that, like that, in Pretty that, in Pink. That, that grounds the film in that era. And I know he struggled to get, and I don't know who produced, uh, was it probably 20th Century Fox, whoever, whoever released uh, American Graffiti, that he struggled to get them to uh, pay for the rights because, you know, he wanted that music and they didn't want to pay the rights for the music. And he really had to uh, kind of a back and forth with the studio to get them to uh, give him enough money to buy the rights for the for the songs because that, that yeah. was that important for him. Yeah. And but but ultimately he won out and got those got all those songs and, and now it's stuff the stuff of legends. Yeah. And unfortunately now we live in a day where everybody's trying to follow that and they're doing that and they're ruining great, great songs <laughs> <laughs> by 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 putting them in, in their movies. And I'll use uh uh Zack Snyder using Pearl Jam and Man of Steel when I forever will associate that song. And I don't even know the title of the song, but I forever associate that song with Cameron Crowe's singles, mm. you know? Um, but again, you know, I'm, I'm, we're way off topic. Where yeah. are we even supposed to be going today and today? But uh, I guess I'll, I'll sit there and bring that upon everybody. Now, uh, of course, all of our other shows, we've either uh, gone over the books of John Byrne or we've talked uh, a movie, which uh, I think our only sideshow has really been the Fantastic Four, uh, Fantastic Four, what the F4, or <laughs> uh, what, what was it, what the FF? WTFF. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so we haven't really, you know, had a, a non-book show. And this well, we is, did Man it, of Steel. We did the Man of Steel show. I mean, the uh, Batman v Superman. Oh, that's right. That's right. And we did our Force Awakens uh, yeah. What we're going to do true. today, though, is uh, now this this podcast is supposed to be about this guy. What, what What's his name? Uh, Mr. Byrne. Mr. Byrne. John Byrne. John Lindley Byrne, uh, who is an American citizen, by the way, for those that don't know. Um, he did get his citizenship uh, a number of years ago, but apparently some people still question him on it. Yes. Um, that run you know, for president. Why do we care? Well, he, he could he can't actually run for president because he wasn't born here and he wasn't a naturalized citizen, meaning his parents weren't citizens here. He was born in England. Yeah. And then they moved, I guess, to America and then Canada and then back to uh, – he's here back in the States. I think he's in Pennsylvania. I don't know for sure and I'm not stalking the man, so I don't, I don't have to know. Uh, <laughs> sure you're not stalking him. No, no. That's not my underwear on his front door. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, anyway, so uh, Tim and I had been talking, and we hadn't done a uh, shoot the show. And 
you know, we, we've been talking about doing like a top five list. And so what we come to decide is to go ahead and do, uh, we, it was down between two different thoughts. Uh, the top five burn runs and then the top five individual stories. And so what we decided to do was the individual stories. So what we're going to do is we're going to, to list our, our top five. And I don't think that we should do them in any particular order, you know, saying that this one or that one is the best. Mine are not, Just, mine are, mine are not in any particular order. My, mine are not either. And, um, the yes. only thing I found interesting is that my top five stories corresponds 80% with my top five runs. And, uh, you know, of course, there's honorable mentions and stuff in mine, there, too. But. Mine, are, mine are kind of close. Mine, mine tie in a lot with my vir- burgeoning collecting, like kind of when I first got into it. So there, yeah. there's a parallel there. And I should say we don't – we haven't traded our list. So I don't know what's in your list. You don't know nope. what's on my list. So I'm curious if any of them are going to overlap. I, I'm sure that they will. Well, again, you know, we're talking five stories out of over 40 years yeah. of – uh, of work. And, you know, I, I didn't limit myself to something that, um, you know, I, he didn't have to be the writer in order for it to be, to be a favorite. In, in my case, he was the artist in every single one of them. Uh, apparently I, I like his art more than his writing. <laughs> well, I think, I think he's always, I think if you had to pick one or the other, I think his, his, as I say, his, uh, his pencil is stronger than his prose. Yeah. Now, um, I was reading on on the Facebooks today. Uh, someone had made a comment about his Avengers run, where Paul Ryan, not Paul Ryan, is that right? Ryan. Ryan was doing the pencils. Mm-hmm. Was he do, was he doing inks on any of that? I didn't think he was. I thought it was all Tom Palmer. I think I think you're right. I think it is Palmer, but I I can't. Don't hold yeah, me to that. It didn't, it didn't show up on the chronology that I recall. That I recall. Anyway, I guess if we got that wrong, somebody will, uh, somebody will correct, will correct us, okay. us for sure. So uh, what we said that we're going to do here is we're going to give the top five burn stories. And um, did I give you any any rules outside of that? Did I say you could only do one per run? No, the only thing you said was a single issue instead of like yeah. a three-issue yeah. arc or something. It's a single issue. So all yeah, mine are one, one, one single issue. Yeah, one single issue. And it could be the middle of the arc or, or, or whatever. So uh, do you want to present yours first? Do you want me to present mine first? Or do you just want us both to go five five four four three three two two one let's one? Just, yeah, let's just go whack one at a time. I'll do one. You do one. You know, that okay. we go back and forth. Okay, um, cool. And – this list is for me. It's always evolving. So it's sometimes if you ask me this next year, it may be a different list. Exactly. You know, exactly. It's never it's some and some of my criteria is what the story meant to me when I read it. So maybe it has to do with you know my time period of when I was collecting, and a lot of it is re readability. You know, these are stories that I like to read over and over. I mean, you can read a story that you like. It's like seeing a movie. You really enjoy it, but you may never feel like the urge to watch it again. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I will start with number one, my my number one, but again, this time particular order, or my number five, or however, just my first one. Right. And it is Fantastic Four number two sixty. Two sixty. Two sixty. What's the, what's the tri- What's the title of that? The title is When Titans Clash. It is the third in a, a three issue arc where Taros, the terrible, when Doom gives him back the power cosmic. Ah, the former Terax the Tamer. Exactly. Now he's Tyros the Terrible. 
Yeah, yeah this this is a, a great one there. It's I find it really interesting yeah. you picked that one. It's uh, I just let me give you the information about it real quick. Uh, cover date was November '83. It went on sale August '83. Sixty cents, thirty-two pages. Uh, writer artist is John Byrne. Letter is James Novak. Colorist is Glennis Ween. You know, I didn't I didn't collect any of this information on the books that I did. That's okay. I just you know I I, I in, in it's so I was like I was like you know there's things that we'll talk about you know whether it's inks and all. But I just didn't, um, I didn't collect all that because, you know, it, I felt this was kind of a personal thing. And, and you know, people are definitely interested in that. But looking at, you know, like that issue, I, you know, I can actually remember when, when I bought it and what was going on around my life when I bought it. What was it, that though, that, that made you want to put this one in your top five, though? That's I put this question. one in my top five because, and I, I honestly can't remember when I bought this. I was collecting... I started the, the Burn Fantastic Four run probably towards the end of his, probably around maybe 270s, around that. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe a year or so before this one came out. So that, like out collectors, I started backtracking and collecting all the back ones. And I think this had, I this was when Secret Wars 2 was out, and they had to, that whole um, the convoluted plot of, uh, they had to bring, you know, Doom was dead. They had to bring him back to be in Secret Wars 2, and they had to explain why he was in, well, why he was in Secret Wars 1, or that wasn't really him, that was him from a different time period, and then he, then he, Beyonder brought him back in Secret Wars 2, when, during Burns' Fantastic Four run, so he had to explain, because at the time, when Secret Wars is run, Doom had died in this issue, spoilers, mm-hmm. Doom dies in this issue, and I think, one, the artwork is just fantastic, I, I love the way he draws, uh, Taros is just as you know, he was always kind of a, he was, well, he was a kind of a bully and he was power hungry and he was just not a very good herald. And this one, he's kind of power mad and he's, it's, you know, a little brief synopsis. It, it This one, uh, Terra said had his power stripped from him by Galactus and everybody thought he had died. He had plummeted to earth and I guess looked like he'd broken every bone in his body. So he's in some earth hospital somewhere. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, the doctors talking about giving him glucose martinis. Yep, exactly. <laughs> for some reason, that particular line has stuck with me all these years since I originally read that. Well, it's funny. There's something I'll, I'll get to here that stuck with me on this issue. And Doom has found a way to uh, synthetically create the power cosmic, but he can't find a human host that can sustain the power. So he thinks, well... Tyrus already had the power cosmic, so maybe his body can withstand it. So he basically steals his, has his uh, bot steal him from the hospital, and he he juices him up, and he's all revved up. And then Tyrus is like, "Oh, I gotta go!" You know, he blames the Fantastic Four for his downfall. So he and Doom is kind of goading him in that way. So he goes after them because Doom wants him to wear them down to a point where he can kind of step in and then kill him and get his revenge. So. This is kind of the the end of the big fight between uh, what we don't know is Reed has disappeared. So he's had a right. uh, had a major major fight with Johnny and Ben and uh, Susan to the point where he's he's kind of got the edge on him. And but Doom realizes that well Reed's not there, so his victory is going to be hollow if he can't defeat Reed. He doesn't want so he steps in and basically tells Tyrus, "Hey, stop it! We're not going to do this. Reed's not here. It's not going to mean anything to me." And by that point, Tyrus is just, you know, he's not listening to anybody. So then he starts fighting Doom, and they have a big uh, kind of brouhaha until he 
finally fuses Doom's armor, and then is going to go off and finish the Fantastic Four. Before he can do that, the Surfer shows up, and they have a big fight. And what Tyrosin realizes was that his the power he was given was going to be temporary, because Doom knew it was going to consume his body in a matter of hours. So he's just burning himself up. And it's just kind of, he's driven mad with power. So he's just like this exploding sun. He's just, all this cosmic power is just erupting out of him. So him and the Surfer are just having a uh, this enormous fight to a point where they look almost like a, a fiery ball, like a comet just streaking through the sky. And they happen to land, <laughs> land on Doom and basically just vaporize him. And Tyrus, yeah. is, he's burned up and Doom is a puddle of goo and all that's left is his mask and the surfer, you know, the surfer's kind of uh, worn out. But what we didn't see was that apparently Doom had transferred his consciousness into a bystander. So th- that was his body that was destroyed, but his mind is in some civilian. Well, wasn't that, that bystander standing right next to him, May Parker? Yeah, yeah, because he kind of tells, because <laughs> May's asking why the Fantastic Four haven't uh, defeated him. And he's like, I, you know, it's tip, you know, typical doom speak. You know, because I don't have time to listen to your proud old woman. And he goes off, and then she berates him for having bad manners. And yeah, that- I'm starting to think that May Parker is actually the center of the Marvel universe. <laughs> I'd always thought it was Spider-Man. She just like, ties everything together. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was a herald of Galactus at one time. It's true. The golden oldie. <laughs> but I guess that was an imaginary story. That's. Uh, but then again, it was a what if. They're all Aren't a magic they star. It, They're all it, was, it wasn't a what if, it was assistant editor's month. Oh, that's right. They just said it was a dream. Thank God it was only a dream. <laughs> but, I'd still like to see that Twinkie. But uh, it just I just love the artwork. I love the story because it's the end of the arc. And this issue has some real consequences that Doom is apparently dead and, is, and stays dead for uh, quite some time. And at the same time, Bird had a great way of kind of weaving plot lines in and out, and you pick up threads from that he that he had written about earlier. Because in this one, you know, Tyrus had been what we thought destroyed, and then he, you know, he brings him back after I think it was about ten or twelve issues prior that he had lost his power. Uh, and I just love the fact that then the mask even plays a major part that they take it back to the Baxter building and put it in the case. And later, uh, it plays a big part. Well, not a big part, but it, you know, there. It, He's not just, he didn't just drop it and say he's dead. And of course, right. we know Doom comes back. But uh, So this has always been a favorite of mine. And, and you thinking about the, the one line that stood out to you. My thing that stood out to me is when a surfer comes down to uh, attack Tyrus, he grabs him by the his beard. Yeah. He just drags him <laughs> off by the beard. And I love that panel. You know, it's, it's interesting because um, this book actually came out at that point where he was doing Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight, and um, I'm trying to remember what, what issue of Alpha Flight was going on. But um, well, this one this one leads directly into Alpha Flight number four. Okay, so yeah, Submariner and the yeah, Master. That's, that's, that's when it came out that month. And yeah. Is that with, with was Namer in Alpha Flight four? Yeah, it's when Sue goes okay. up to Canada. It's dealing with the Master and some he's doing. I can't remember. But he's doing some with some big machine in Canada. Right, and I can't take the way Namer looks here in this book with a big head. The big head, because, you know, when Byrne did the Namor book years later, he gave him a little bit more of a, a different type of Widow's Peak, a different shape to the head. Uh, this one is a bit more Kirby-esque. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is, this is this is true Byrne art in, you know, the height of the day. He's doing his own inks 
you know, on his art. And, you know, this, the lines here don't appear as thick as they did in Alpha Flight that I recall. And I have to go back and look at the Alpha Flight. But um, I remember thinking how thick his lines were getting on Alpha Flight, uh, especially, in the, you know, as you get up towards issue 12. Mm-hmm. But uh, here, the art is just so, so beautiful. And this is, you know, what you love best in John Byrne, right there smack dab in the Marvel Universe where everything touches everything. You've got so many things in this in this story. Uh, I mean, even without Reed Richards in there, I mean, you got Silver Surfer, you got Doom, you got a huge battle of big implications. You've got Submariner, and you've got the death of a character, the death of two characters, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's just November. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah, and it just goes into another, like I said, just, it just goes into another... A bigger big storyline. Or in Alpha Flight, yeah. No, and not just that, but the storyline that Fantastic Four heads into after this. Because you're getting up to the trial of, of Reed Richards. Yep. And again, one of those great, great storylines. And one of those things where John Byrne gives us a conceptual, a concept, an idea that uh, J. Michael Straczynski also used in Babylon 5 a few years later that um, I had never considered until I saw, you know, until I read this. And, you know, before I saw Babylon 5, I saw that I read this and saw And Do you know what I'm talking about in the way that everybody viewed Galactus? I understand. And in, in, in the FF, I don't, I don't have watched enough Babylon 5 to understand. Yeah, I mean, in FF, of course, you know, I and mean, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't read these issues. <laughs> um, as Galactus reveals himself to all the various aliens that's at the trial of Reed Richards. Everybody sees them as they see him, whether it is this guy, giant guy in purple armor or giant scroll-like, you know, as the scrolls see him. Everybody sees Some see him as their devil. Some see him, you know, but they all see him differently. Different, differently because it's what your mind is able to put together of what you see. And that explains better than anything else why you would have that giant G on the belt buckle, you know? But, you know, that's, that's just me going on about that. I, I will defend that to my dying or day. Or why he was wearing shorts in his first appearance. Yeah, and had short sleeves, too. Had short yes. sleeves, yeah. Short sleeves. Well, maybe summertime, New York get kind of hot. Well, you, you know, it's funny because uh, there's been a number of times where, like, if you read the early Doctor Strange stories or you read the Roger Stern stuff, what you can tell is that as he is battling Baron Mordo or, or whoever he's battling – that while you're seeing the, all these things go on around them, the actual attacks and parries are so quick and so massive, and they're coming from the mind as well as the body, that that you know you're not able to sit there and process it the way. Even in the comic book, they have a hard time physically showing that. Yeah, I, I hope that in the Doctor Strange movie we get a better a better sense of that. But, but they were at least able able to write it into a way that your mind could bend around it and and form something. Well, Ditko certainly of, took a uh, the best shot at trying to conceive of what that type of landscape would look like. Yes, and I can't wait to see what what they do here. Yeah, I'm kind of excited for that film too. So, Fantastic Four 260. Yeah, I agree. That is a great one, and it it came at a great time. Do you remember when you bought it? Probably, I can't say for sure, probably 
probably 85, 86, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I re- see, I, re- I remember the, this, this time actually uh, perfectly because um, I had just gotten back from uh, my first three-month trip to Turkey. And my, my parents lived over there as my father worked for General Dynamics, uh, basically showing the Turks how to build spare parts for F-16s. Mm. And um, so when I got back home, uh, I had uh, I had a little bit of money in my pocket, a little disposable cash, and I didn't have to go back to work right away. So I was actually trolling the comic book shops and picking up everything of burn that I could because I had missed actually a couple years of uh, of collecting. I mean, I, I, I picked up, you know, some books at the comic book shop on, on the Wednesdays when things new came out, but I wasn't collecting Fantastic Four. And for the life of me, I can't tell you why. You know, I, I, I think, you know, my budget then and the books that I wanted to carry were, were particular ones. And I guess I was more of a completist then as far as Spider-Man and X-Men went. Yeah. But X-Men, uh, as they get up into the high 100s, uh, which was in the John Romita Jr. Uh, range. And after I, I really enjoyed the Paul Smith uh, run. But the John Romita Jr., um, sometimes his art suffered a little bit then. It, it really depended upon the anchors. And I wasn't a fan of Dan Green as uh, John Romita Jr.'s anchor. Well, I think that was a point where Romita, Romita was experimenting with kind of finding close to the style we, we know now that it was changing from his, say, the stuff he was doing on Iron Man or well, when he, Spider-Man. When he, he had guys like Al Williamson inking off of, or even Klaus Jansen. I really liked Klaus Jansen inking him back in that day. Um, I really, really liked his work, but whenever uh, Dan Green would ink it, there was something so loose in the way that it came out. Uh, just the way he made Colossus look in the distance was just so not right. You know, you, you're so used to, you know, Byrne or, or Paul Smith creating this crisp, beautiful armor set. And, you know, John Romita Jr.'s Colossus was a little bit more organic, I guess. He didn't look as shiny. Right. As, uh, right, he was dull. Yeah, he was kind of the reverse side of tinfoil. You know, tinfoil's right. got a shiny side and a dull side. He was kind right, of that but- side. Okay, what we've been going back on all this is that, you know, what it, what it was is that I went for a while there where I wasn't picking up any Fantastic Four. And I had gotten a hold of a magazine that actually had a, uh, like, a chronology of everything that Byrne had done. And so I was picking up pretty much, you know, I would go into the comic book shop every other day and buy, like, six books. I had, like, a limit. I could only buy, like, six books or I could only spend so many dollars and uh, so I would go in there every other day and I would pick up a number of books. And it was a, the shop was called Heroes Workshop. And it was actually a comic book shop that I had been offered. Uh, the, the guy that, that owned it uh, was a distributor of offered, comic books. Offered to sell you the comic book shop? Yeah, uh, Bob Picaro was the owner. And he also ran a distributorship out of uh, Michigan, I think. And he was actually a New York guy. And he wanted to leave Texas. He had uh, three, two or three shops, and then he had uh, a couple hair salons. And he was really running them at a loss for tax shelter, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so he could only do that for a couple of years, and then he had to switch businesses. So he wanted to dump those businesses 
so that he didn't have to take the, the loss anymore. And what he didn't tell me this. His ex-wife told me this. Um, but one day he comes out to me as I'm getting ready to, to, to you know, drive off. And he tells me that he would, you know, if he's asking if I would be interested in taking over the shops and buying them from him, including all the inventory. And I say, you know, I, he, I am at this point a 20-year-old college student. I'm 20 years old. Uh, no, 21. I was 21. And I'm just like, I, I, you know, I don't know. And he goes, well, this is what we could do. You take over the shops and you pay me out of your monthly profits. It's a New York deal. We don't have to go to the banks. We don't have to you know, do all this stuff. I tell you, I thought long and hard about that. <laughs> I thought That's... long and hard. Because I was, uh, you know, that again, I was 21. I was in college, but I had um, already had my butt handed to me by college, and I had to basically start over. You know, they kind of asked me not to come back. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I, was, like. I, was, <laughs> I was too distracted. I had too much fun my freshman year. So I was rebuilding, you know, my GPA and everything. And so I had a little, little ways longer to go, and I had to work my way at this point through. I had to get my grades in order to get paid for them, so to speak. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and if I got a bad grade, I didn't get paid for that. And I only got paid for the classes. I didn't get paid for the books or anything else. So I was really struggling to survive in that thing. And just the idea of doing that, I couldn't fathom the changes I would have to make to my life in order to be able to survive. And again, running multiple shops means having to manage people. That's well, that's just hard. If you're doing that, would be hard to do if you were if you weren't if that was your only job. But if you're trying right. to go to school at the same time, I would have to quit school. Yeah, that that much was was obvious. I spoke to my oldest brother, who is a pretty pretty smart, savvy businessman, and just you know, there were just too many unknowables in that. And the thing is, is that he he told me what kind of stock back stock he had. He had hundreds of long boxes that hadn't been inventoried, hundreds of them that were just stacked up in his warehouse and he had no idea what was there. He could add action comics number one there. I don't know, but it just was too much. Yeah, I, I, I just couldn't that, see doing that, that's it. That's a big and undertaking. So I turned it down. Now the guy that, that took it over, his name is Ronnie and Ronnie's a good guy. Ronnie's a smart guy. I like Ronnie and Ronnie ran the shops. Well, still got closed down. Couldn't keep him running because the practice that Bob had, because he was trying to go for a loss, was he had 50 off back back issues. He had these all these boxes of back issues that there could have been the first appearance of the Hobgoblin or, you know, the, the first appearance of Spidey's new costume. Mm -hmm. Or you, you could go back to any of the Burn X-Men. You could get the Burn X-Men there. Except The only thing you couldn't find in those boxes was like Giant Size X-Men number one. Yeah. Yeah, or, or, or uh, X Men '93. You know, it, it, you couldn't you couldn't find the the super high dollar stuff, but there was plenty of stuff that was worth five, seven, ten, twenty dollars at the day. The first appearance of Electra, you know, that you can get there and you can get it half, half off. Half off. That's so was, yeah, that was a, that was a steal, and that was killing business for uh, places like Lone Star. Uh, actually, back in that day, it would be yeah, it was Lone Star. Yeah, Lone Star. Because Fantastic Worlds had already sold over. Um, there was the, the, the guy that, that owned Fantastic Worlds was Bob Wayne, uh, who went to work at, at uh, DC in public relations. Oh. 
and he's just retired within the last two, three years from there. And I think he's moved back here to Fort Worth. He actually offered me a job running running uh, Fantastic Worlds. I don't know why these people, people keep offering you jobs. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and the thing was is I turned them all down back then, and you know, of course now and here I am at this age, and I'm just like, if I had taken one of those on, who knows where my life would be right now? Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> again, that was that 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 summer of '87. Um, I was 21 years old, and and I was buying those, and I bought all these Fantastic Fours, including this one that led up to that. And so I was buying the rest of the books until he left the book, which actually he'd left the book by then, uh, by the time I actually started collecting all of them. Yeah. I, I collect, I came on just when he had moved on to Superman, not quite, but he was just, cause I jumped from, from FF to Superman, but he was just finishing up his run mm-hmm. on FF when I came on. That's but lucky by then you could kind of get the back issues and they weren't terribly, you could get most of them cover price for maybe, you know, 50 cents more. They weren't terribly expensive. Yeah. And sometimes you can still find them now in 50 cent bins or dollar bins. Yeah. yeah. The Fantastic Four 260 is definitely one of those milestone issues that you can probably say that most people in our age range that are serious comic book fans are going to know exactly what you're talking about. Or if they don't know the number, you could say, well, this is what happens. They're, they're going to know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so, what is your first book? Okay, my Thank first you. book uh, was X-Men 133. Ah, that's my next one. <laughs> <laughs> Wolverine <laughs> Alone. And this, of course, is a Burn Claremont extravaganza. This was uh, – now, the, the, the story itself, of course, is part of the Dark Phoenix saga. This is the one where uh, the X-Men have gone to the Hellfire Club – trying to find out why the Hellfire Club is going after the X-Men. And um, in the previous issue, Wolverine had been knocked down through the floor into the sewers by uh, Leyland. And uh, I, I just remember at the end of that issue, Wolverine uh, you know, pulling up his claws and saying, okay, but suckers, you've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. Mm-hmm. And I remember waiting and hitting every story because I wasn't hitting comic book shops then. It wasn't quite yet 1980, and I didn't really get to see comic book shops until 82. So I was hitting U-Totems and 7-Elevens and, uh, you know, the, all, the, all the quickie marts and whatever, trying to find, find that next issue to find out what happened with Wolverine, <laughs> you know, and the, and the X-Men. But it was like, okay, this the thing is, though, this isn't really where the story begins. The story actually begins uh, my birthday of this year, of that year. My brother's uh, good friend, a guy by the name of King Hoover, and this is part of my comic book origin, my John Byrne comic book origin. For my birthday, he gave me a stack of comic books. Included in that stack was a, ver- a Green Lantern issue 12. Wow. Yeah, very old, very old one. Um, Amazing Adventures, reprints of the early X-Men, number five, the first appearance of the Blob. And X-Men 132, which was the issue preceding the one I'm talking about here. Nice. Okay. Now, the thing is, is that, that when I got that stack, I, I looked at Green Lantern and go, it's Green Lantern. I, you know, I got to read that. And I read that. And there's a Batman and some other stuff in there. But, you know, one day I'm just sitting there kind of bored. And, you know, I didn't really, the X-Men just, you know, they had Sebastian Shaw on the front cover throwing the X-Men down on the pile. So I, I didn't recognize anybody or anything in the book. 
and I didn't have any interest in reading it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this one day when I was bored, I looked at the cover to The Amazing Adventures and I saw the bean coming out of Cyclops' eyes. And I'm like, hey, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll read that one. And so I read that And of course, realizing it was an old reprint and then looking at the cover of 132, realized that's the same guy. guy. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, I really, I really identified with the young Cyclops in that, that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby story. And, um, you know, I just so identified with Cyclops in everything that was going on because there he was, he couldn't even talk to Gene and then Angel run takes her away and, you know, all uh, just the way the story goes. Yeah. And so I, I sit there and go, well, I'll have to look at this one. And I just opened it up and there's Angel coming down. And I'm like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. And that was the first time I you know, started looking at the names of the, of the writers and artists and everything. And the end of that issue, Wolverine sitting there saying that, you know, now it's my turn. I just, it was the first time I ever remember going to the store looking for that next issue, wanting that next issue so bad. And it wasn't for several months before I actually found it. We were at a uh, little crappy department store called Gibson's. Oh, yeah. I remember Gibson's. And um, it was in the old Edgecliff town village, town center, whatever it was, strip center of stores and whatnot. And um, my mom is looking for school clothes or whatever. And my dad is sitting out in the car. And I'm walking around and I come by the magazine section and sitting there is X-Men 133, 134, and 135. All nice. Three, nice. All of them right there. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And so I grab them up. They're the only copies of them there at all. But they're all in good shape. And I go to my mom. And I go, Mom, can I get these? And she says, Brian, just one. <laughs> and I'm like, but I, no, Mom, it's, look, it's all three. And, 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 and I won't be able to find them after this. And I've been trying to find this. And... I somehow finagled a way of doing it. I think I ended up having to mow the lawn with the electric lawnmower. <laughs> if you know anything about electric lawnmowers in the mid to late 80s, that is horrible. It's the most thing you can do as a teenager. Um, or, I'm sorry, late 70s. <laughs> we had some old electric lawnmower that a friend of ours had bought at Kmart and gave to us. And, and my dad thought it was a gift. I thought it was a curse. <laughs> But anyway, uh, my mom ended up going ahead and buying buying those books for me. And I remember reading this one more than all the others. And it was because of, you know, of course, what Wolverine was doing in the book. I mean, there was so much going on in the book. But just seeing Wolverine do his little dirty, hairy routine and the way he tore into those guys down underneath, you know, the in the basement of the Hellfire Club. And realizing that he's killing these guys or at least looks like he's killing these guys this is something you didn't see in a comic book you 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 know spider-man he didn't kill anybody superman didn't kill anybody here was wolverine carving guys up with his claws and this really you know i mean it it had a a huge effect especially when he gives his little dirty hairy speech and he starts talking about adamantium the guy yeah you know and, and i'm just like Okay, now this is just the coolest thing ever. And so I, I read that, read this one over and over and over. And again, you know, I mean, this isn't just Chris Claremont's writing, and it isn't just John Byrne's art, but it's the two working together. And yeah, I know they, that, yeah, that, they both... that they may not have had the best relationship, but 
as with any great duo, when they work together, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of tension, and from that stress and tension comes great work. And this is just a prime example of it. Well, this is, to me, this is the like the the one issue that kind of really proves that Wolverine is a badass. Yes. It proves that this is the reason why he is the best he, at what he does from this issue because it's it's the first half of it is just Wolverine and how he's dealing with these goons that have been sent down to tracking and then of course they, they cut back to the, the Hellfire Club and, and the mastermind and the way he's you know he's taken over Jean's mind so that she thinks that she's living in the past and all these the X-Men are their are enemies but leading up to the Dark Phoenix and as much as I like the Dark Phoenix saga mm-hmm. I actually like the Hellfire because I've got this reason I uh, I, li- I love this issue, but I've got this collected in the Dark Phoenix Saga, so I have all these issues kind of leading up to that. Yeah. And I like the Hellfire story, I think, a little bit better than the Dark Phoenix Saga. Or that till, till, you know, until she actually turns when they're, they're escaping from the Hellfire Club and she turns into Dark Phoenix. I well, like that, all the issues up to that. You know, that, that issue where, where she turns to Dark Phoenix and she wipes out the X-Men. She didn't kill him, fortunately, but wipes out the X-Men. And then goes and blows up the Dabari star. Mm-hmm. And I recognized the asparagus people the moment that uh, that they showed <laughs> them there. Those were the guys from Avengers uh, issue four where they brought back Captain America. And uh, I recognized those and I just realized, man, they just killed billions, billions. And that, that story gave me such a pit in the bottom of my stomach that uh, I've always had a hard time reading that particular issue. But if you look at that issue, that one ties to so many different characters. Is that one page where you got Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer and, and the Thing and every you know all these things realizing something big is happening? Right, they're sensing this uh, disturbance in the force. Ex- exactly, exactly what they're they're uh, they're sensing is you know this malevolent force has taken over uh, Jean Grey. Yeah, in and the way you know, it touches everybody. Right, and this issue right here epitomizes everything that was great about that age of the X-Men. But I think it also shows why it can't ever be done again. Not like this. Because it's all the first time. It's the first time you see it before it becomes cliche. Right, right. It's the first time you see it before it, you know, so it, it stops becoming taboo. And, you know, you can't go home again with this. You can't they, they tried getting those two together. They got them together on Justice League, but that was really just the lead into the Doom Patrol. Yeah, and, it's yeah, it's just it's, it's some things are are perfect for when they happen, and like, as you said, it's hard to recreate that. It's hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. Right, right. But you know, there's there's this passage on here on page two that always got me, and that was Wolverine never stops, never slows. Each move blending into the next in a, in a frightening display of destruction. He's doing what he does best and having the time of his life. Well, it, it takes him from, if you thought of him as just a bruiser. No, right. he's actually a skilled, whatever he is, you know, whatever. Killer. He is yeah, a killer. A skill, yeah, a skilled killer. I mean, for what it is. Uh, Stone cold, dot on the wall, killer. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. But no, and, and yeah, that, no, that that's just... Again, the whole issue just sit there and tells you everything you need to know about him. But also, you get um, your profile of the, the the Hellfire Club. Now, the thing is, is that I, I didn't know them from Adam. 
I didn't know them from, from anybody, and apparently nobody did up to this point. Mm. This is the most information we've really gotten on the Hellfire Club up to this point. I found it really interesting later, and I'm talking within just the last few years, that Byrne was basing his characters on you know movie stars of his day. Sebastian Shaw being based on Robert Shaw, Leland being based on Orson Welles. I can see that. And, and Donald Pierce being based on Donald Sutherland. I can see that too. Who played Hawkeye Pierce in the original MASH movie. I can certainly see Robert Shaw. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it looks like he's right out of Jaws there. Yeah, a little more I remember, I remember uh, after seeing Jaws, there was some movie on that was uh, some sort of pirate movie, I think, and he was in it. And I'm like, like my gosh, he looks just like Sebastian Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing that. And then, um, of course, Return of the Jedi comes out, and the actor that plays Darth Vader is Sebastian Shaw. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing how the world turns. Though I never did figure out who Jason Wingard is supposed to appear when Mastermind I is I don't in know. This. I can't tell. He looks a little Tom Selleck, but that's too early for Selleck. He could be – I don't know. He could be. Yeah. Just now, the a, other thing about guy. this issue, though, the other thing about this issue that I really, really just – glommed onto in a big way was Cyclops communicating or trying to communicate with Gene through the you know the psychic rapport. Yeah. And him going into the astral plane and everything that went into his duel with Mastermind, even though he lost, I still thought, wow, that was just the coolest thing ever. Here's a guy that, you know, he's got that one power and it's more of a curse than anything in his optic blast. And yet here he is traveling into another world using nothing but his mind. Well, he, he talks about that. He says, I mean, I'm my, you know, my, he talks about that. He's got that Ruby Quartz kind of hood on. He says, but I'm not helpless. I still have my mind. And that's when he starts right. to reach out to her. And he realizes that he, he's, he's not just a guy who can fire optic blasts. He is, you know, that, that's what I, I kind of think people kind of forget that they, they think of Cyclops as just, oh, he's just a guy that can, you know, blast stuff. No, his true power is as a leader. You know, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what makes him a formidable X-Men. It's not the fact that he can, you know, well, yeah, yeah. he can blast you to pieces with his with his eyes, but it's his... Um, he's he's Richards, right. He's never, a strategist. He's a strategist. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like Captain and America, Reed Richards, all these people that are more than just the, the power that they've been given. Yeah. Now, I think one of my favorite things in this book that wasn't dealing with the action or the story was Wolverine's expressions in particular, you know, when he's doing the fight, he's got one expression, but when that one guard puts the gun up to his head mm -hmm. outside the party and he grabs the guard's gun and, you know, he throws you know, his hand and he throws the guy into the party, the expression on his face was priceless. And I had never seen anything like that in a comic book, but it was just one of those, okay, he's smiling. <laughs> Yep. But in a, it's, it's a smirk, and it was really, really cool. I just thought that was hilarious. Well, the artwork is just, I mean, you you can't beat Burton Austin. I mean, it's just no. so crisp it's, and detailed and energetic, and it's so full of power, and just, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just, it's just wonderful. Yeah, that's, again, definitely, this is one of those that deserves to be at the top of, top mm. of the list, that's for sure. What's um, interesting is the, uh, if you read New Mutants, the graphic novel that's you know started the uh, the the series proper, these same henchmen show up in that, and I think it's when they're attacking Roberto Sunspot. 
mm-hmm. one of them mentions has a callback to this. He says, "Yeah, uh, we were you know we were all cut up by uh, Wolverine, but then we were you know basically had bionic implants or something that made them stronger and tougher." Yeah, and they came back again. Now they were in a, a later issue that Claremont wrote, but the art was done by somebody really bad, and they they brought back uh, those guys with some Sentinels. Yeah, but uh, in I'm trying to find it here real quick. Yeah, X Men 205. It's a Claremont story with art by Barry Windsor Smith. Oh, there you go. Is that the Storm? Um, no, this is uh, Wolverine and Katie Power versus Lady Deathstrike and those guys from the Hellfire oh. Club. And apparently they'd hurt Wolverine pretty bad. And little Katie Power has to basically help Wolverine through a snowstorm uh, while he recovers enough to be able to fight Lady Deathstrike. And Lady Deathstrike, you know, most people don't realize this. She actually came from Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Daredevil storyline written by uh, Denny O'Neill where uh, her father, I think he was called Dark Wind, was a, uh, com- a failed kamikaze pilot. Kamikaze pilot who survived, mm-hmm. you know. And so he basically put her through some stuff with her lover, boyfriend, whatever, and wound up killing him. So she basically found herself on a dark path. Now, she was with Daredevil, and you thought that she was going to wind up being a good girl. But after after she left the Daredevil book and Daredevil left Japan and went back to the United States, Daredevil was basically trying to stop – bullseye from going through the same adamantium process as wolverine yeah and so that's how the two of them got hooked up and then she wound up getting some sort of process that made her a cyborg also a pretty messed up cyborg with those uh long fingers of hers right right now that she was the one that we saw in x-men 2 fighting wolverine right but they just gave her a healing you know healing power and same kind of you know skeleton he's got just you know, blades out of the fingers, which again didn't make any more sense than than the Deadpool sword in X Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, <laughs> uh, the less spoken about that, the better. Yeah, but uh, you know, again, going back to this particular book, it's a seminal book, and uh, it, you know, it deserves to be on a top five list somewhere. <laughs> okay, so what you got next? My oh, next one was X Men One Thirty Three. Yeah, which we've already covered. <laughs> Yeah. It saves us a little time. Uh, my next book is Action Comics Annual Number One from 1987. Oh, wait, is that John Byrne is the writer? Art Adam is Adam's, the penciler. Yes. Dick Giordano Did... is the inker. Uh, Albert Guzman letterer and colorist is Petra Scottis. Or yeah. he also has Goldberg here. Uh, and this was a whopping dollar twenty-five because it was forty-eight pages. Uh, and I picked this because one, I just I like the story, mm-hmm. and this was a time when I was discovering Art Adams, and I I love me some Art Adams. Just, oh yeah, it's a shame he just does not put out enough. He's I think it's just because he's not he's not quick enough. And yeah, he's not at, he's not that quick. Hmm. But you know, the, and so they they were pretty good about giving him one shots here and there, or they give him a series, but they'd let him work on whatever schedule he had rather than right. a deadline. So I did a lot of uh, annuals, or he did. Uh, did you did you ever read Long Shot? I've got it. I don't. I've, I've read it. It's been so long ago. I don't. Uh, I, mean, my, my, I think I discovered him when he was doing the like the X Babies. Uh, yeah, the, the, and the X Men Annuals, the New yeah. Mutant Annuals, yeah, and the yeah. specials. That Asgardian crossover that was really cool. Yeah, and he's got a Godzilla special, a uh, color special that's pretty cool. 
because he's yeah. apparently he's a big Godzilla fan. Yes. Big Kaiju fan. And this is... And Gumby. He's a big Gumby fan. I did not know that. Yes. Um, Gumby and Pokey. <laughs> I'm Gumby Dubbit. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the story's called Skeeter, and it's basically just an old-fashioned vampire story. It's kind of a... Uh, a uh, not a... Uh, Brave and a Bold. It's a team-up between... Well, of course, at this point, Action Comics was a team-up with Spider- uh, Superman and whoever else. It was, it was Action Comics at that point was kind of like uh, Marvel team-up and Superman and whoever else wanted to team-up with it. So this is... Uh, or DC Comics Presents. DC Comics Presents. Yeah. Uh, and I may be wrong here, but is this is this maybe the second time we've met Superman and Batman together? Because they yeah, mentioned because the Magpie he- story, which we've already covered on this show. Yeah, the magpie uh, incident was the first time that they they met. And this may be the second time, possibly. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically it opens with a girl being chased in the, in the, the swamp by some townsfolk, and she's you know she's wearing Daisy Dukes, and she's she's looks like she's about oh I'd say fourteen, fifteen. And she looks very scared. Very and Ellie Mae Clampett. Exactly. Very. Yeah. Very. Um, and I will say this: uh, Art Adams draws. Uh, nice, attractive females. He's got the curves down. Yep. S- especially when it when it comes to the the legs, the backside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's he uh, he's got female anatomy in the uh, not 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 quite so Rob Liefeld extreme. No, but there is an extremeness about it. it it's definitely sterilized. Sterilized. Stylized. Uh, the thing that I noticed from him when I first started reading him was that he, he has a way of drawing everyone to the right thick wrist. I don't know why that's that's his <laughs> thing, but he seems, you know, he doesn't draw them uh, very delicately. But anyway, she's been chased to the woods, and then and the, basically the townsfolks with pitchforks and, and uh, torches are chasing her. She manages to escape and make it to what we see as an old kind of derelict cabin, and she says she meets her, her folks, and we find out they are two kind of mummified kind of Norma Bates mother kind of um, figures that are sitting at a table. Then we cut to uh, Batman showing up in this town called uh, Fayetteville. I think it's called Fayetteville. And he's in disguise and he's looking, he's on a, he's been tracking some murders from Gotham to here where the victims have been, you know, killed like a vampire. They've, They've drained the blood and their throat tripped out. And he finds a dead woman, and he then he gets chased by the town people. And we don't at that point you don't know kind of what's going on, but he needs help, so he calls in Superman, and Superman changes and flies out there. Batman meets Skeeter, this you know this scared little girl, and she thinks he's there to rescue her, until she realizes that he's not who she he's not who she thinks he is, and that, it's that's not obviously clear in the book except. Only thing I can think is that she obviously I'll skip it. She is she's the vampire. She's the one that's been killing everybody. And I don't know if she thinks he is another vampire there to save her and her folks. Well, when she finds out that oh. he's not who, yeah, she says he is. She turns on him and tries to kill him, and he jumps out the window into quicksand, and she thinks he's dead. Well, in the meantime, Superman has shown up in town, contacted the sheriff, was asking, you know, kind of, have you seen Batman? He's like, no, but there's some you know, weird stuff going on. And he's seeing some clues that there are people. Nobody's asleep. All the townspeople are up about late at night. Uh, the sheriff has a sharpened wooden uh, stake in his drawer. And then he shows him all these bodies they've discovered, or all these victims. 
that they got into a locked up in this, I guess, a morgue or some kind of a warehouse. And then I think she really, oh, that at that point, when she turns on Batman, she summons all these bodies, she, I guess, that she's bitten to break out. And that's when Superman notices they've broken out. And that's when there's, you know, there's a big fight. He rounds them all up, puts them in a makeshift cage. And then she fights. Then she starts, and she's starting to change. So she's starting to look more vampire-like. She attacks Superman, and he realizes that because she's supernatural, that she can d- do damage to him. So there's a big fight, and she's about to really bite him and kill him and join her when Batman plunges a stake through her heart and kills her. That's then she so much, yeah. So much for no killing. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. They're already dead. She was already dead. Out. Well, and he says it was really uh, self-preservation because he didn't like the idea of a super vampire running around. And then he finds out that she was she had been turned into a vampire in like the 1860s, and her parents had died. And they don't explain how her parents died, and so they've got these bodies lined up that they're going to have to bury. And it ends with. Batman with a mallet and a handful of stakes like well basically you know just one more thing I gotta do and you guys you know don't have to watch if you don't want to yeah so it's uh, I've always liked this one because it's again it's it's beautiful artwork Bart Adams the story is just kind of a, it has kind of a twist in it it almost has a kind of a Twilight Zone twist but you kind of see it coming you know, you're not surprised when she turns out to be the vampire right um, and it's just a good old fashioned it's nice the Batman and, and Superman meeting up again, and this may be is uh, is this the first time we discover post crisis that uh, anything supernatural can harm Superman, or has that been I, established already? I think that it was one of those things that was de facto established without actually showing it. Showing it. So this is probably the first time that I can recall. No, because I think he already had his dealings with Etrigan. That's in, right. He had, in he action a, comics, right? He already had a crossover. Um, he just probably—that's just they're repeating it for the audience. Like if he hadn't read that before, he had to realize why. Well, if he's Superman, why can she scratch it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Superman has already been overtaken by a number of things at this point. Uh, the glomer on Dar- on uh, Apocalypse mm-hmm. and uh, Mammoth from the the Fearsome Five, Fatal Five, whatever the group is that fights the Teen Titans had actually already knocked Superman out and just by sheer brute force. But that was more of a, a mental thing on his side. Yeah. Where, but yeah, the um, I can't think of, aside from when he was dealing with Etrigan and um, Galley. Yeah, in that action comics, I think that's the only time where we saw any kind of magical interference. You got me sitting there really thinking about this. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and take a look at that. Well, uh, here, here's a question. If she had managed to bite him and turn him, Mm-hmm. What he still have, since supernatural magical powers seem to cancel out his powers, would he still be a super vampire or do he just be a vampire? Well, okay, now this is the beauty uh, of this. Uh, he would die if he'd been turned. Mm-hmm. He is a living nuclear reactor is how he'd been described by John Byrne. His whole body runs on yellow sun energy. He doesn't consume food like we we do. He doesn't need to consume food. Mm-hmm. So basically, he doesn't have those bodily functions. His body probably consumes every bit of energy that gets into him. But since it is yellow sunlight, if he was bitten by a vampire, he would probably incinerate right on the spot. It'd be like standing in the sunlight. Yeah, because he wouldn't be, if he if he lives on solar radiation. Yeah, and he couldn't 
be in the light because he's a vampire, yeah, he probably would die. Yeah. I mean, one way or the other, he would either die from his own body or he would die from not being able to get the light. Right. Golly, that, yeah, that's one of those uh, you yeah, can really twist your noodle there. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, and again, Art Adams art, I've always loved it. I actually was not a fan of Giordano's uh, inking, if it is Giordano. It is. Um, yeah, I wasn't a fan of the of the inking on it as much as I am of Terry Austin's inks on his that we saw in the the uh, X Men Annuals and New Mutants. The, yeah. the, the 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 work there was so much more vibrant than than what we saw here. And I don't know if they if because it was you know darker and there was a lot of shadows and we got to see didn't we get to see the angry red eyes in this story? I don't think he uses his heat vision. I don't think he does. But we did get the Superman silhouettes where he's all dark except for the S symbols. Right, right. Yeah, when, he's, when he first and, leaves a building, he's flying that was out. A, that was a, a Frank Millerfication of the artwork right there is what that yeah. was. That was that was definitely a Miller influence. But yeah, you know, it, it, it was a departure from the work that we'd seen of his uh, over at Marvel, whether it was Longshot or, or the uh, X-Men stuff. Yeah. And, you know, again, I liked it. I just didn't like it as much as what he was doing over at Marvel. And I, fe- I felt that he was more suited to a Marvel book. Uh, I, I, it is funny I agree there. because, because around this time, a young artist by the name of Todd McFarlane was working on uh, Batman year two at, um, at DC. Mm-hmm. And when I saw his art, I said, Oh, he's just trying to look like McFarlane. McFarlane. <laughs> You know, but there are a lot of people that have not agreed with me on that particular point. But that's what I saw when I saw McFarlane's work. You thought McFarlane was trying to look like Art Adams? Yeah, or? he was looking. Look, yeah, McFarlane was trying to look like. Uh, he was. It seemed like his work was thicker. You know, when when you look at um, Art Adams' work or uh, Dale Cowan's work or whatever, you you notice that everybody's got a bit thinner, or the characters are drawn smaller, uh, especially in the Marvel work. Uh, not not so much on the on the DC side when he did action comics when he did this annual he fleshed it out and stretched it out a bit but still yeah. had that kind of tininess that I, I don't know how else to describe it well Art Adams stuff has always looked kind of delicate because he's mm-hmm. so detailed it's it's I, I kind of relate him a little bit to uh, Frank Quietly but yes yeah Quietly uses if you take away all the coloring and Quietly he is his is almost just um, black and white line drawings. He doesn't do a lot of shading or any kind of um, anything to fill in shadows or give it uh, some depth. depth. It's yeah. all done with the coloring. And Art Adams does, he does, he loves doing um, he has a funky way of doing like uh, kind of like sparks where he has them yeah. square. And yeah, he does and a lot of cross hatching for his um, So much detail. So yeah. much detail in, in his fresh work, that's for sure. And I almost got uh, you know the idea that Giordano, when he was doing this, was almost pulling a Vinnie Coletta. <laughs> like he it. took he took some of the detail out of it. He took the eraser to it. You know, he may have because it just didn't seem as ornate or as as vibrant as what we saw in the other books. Well, and that I, I was disappointed by that. I think part of that may be that now that I look at it again, maybe it's just my, my I'm looking at a scanned copy of the actual book. the <laughs> The colors are a little muted. Yes, they are, and that, and that maybe have something to do with. It definitely why. made it dark. It made it a lot darker. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, but that's a good one. I mean, and, and you know, the thing is, it was a good, interesting story. Yeah, 
and and in looking at that, you know, and he was a, an art robot on that. I'm sure. I, I don't know that they collaborated on the story like Burma collaborate with Claremont. You know, there was pretty much Byrne gave him the script. You know, gave him the the, the breakdowns and the, the script, script yeah. and said and said this is what we're going with, and he just had to to draw from that. I don't think he created the layouts himself. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if did Byrne did breakdowns or if uh, he just gave him the script and did the yeah. old Marvel way and then uh, Adams gave him back pages or breakdowns and then Byrne approved him and said, yeah, run with that. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a, it's, you know, it's just a kind of a fun little, uh, it's kind of a vampire story with a twist. Uh, it's I, like, not, I like my vampires in movies. I don't like them so much in comic books. Well, Byrne doesn't do a lot of horror. This is kind of a straight up horror and he doesn't do a lot of uh just kind not, of su- not like this. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. We don't really see a whole lot of that until he does that again. That Justice League crossover with Chris Claremont, mm-hmm. leading up to the Doom Patrol, and then they they get dealing with the vampires and all that in there too. Yeah, and I think that's part of why I've never really gone and um, been able to get through that series. It's just it's stuff that doesn't interest me. Vampires, um, as far as Superman and other characters are concerned, are just too powerful. You know, mm-hmm. and so they kind of bore me in the, in that regard. Uh, you, you're going to have to give Superman a different way of getting around them, uh, and they never do it in such a way that you know he uses his intellect or, or whatever. It's always just you know usually by working with someone else. Well, they're sure that, that well, he's able to get around it. They're they're kind of a form of kryptonite. They you right. know and. The, the, the Bronze Age, there was always fine in some way. You have to take Superman out of the equation early. Oh, something super something with kryptonite sidelines him so the other heroes, because he has to be you know, pushed aside because he can solve it right away. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, are you, you move have, on to the next one? Yeah, you're number two, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. this one, uh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> this one is Fantastic Four, number 278, titled... True Lies. Now, this one, of course, was uh, written and drawn by John Byrne, but the inking on this one was uh, Jerry Ordway. And this is the story that gives us Byrne's take on the origin of Doctor Doom while setting up Kristoff as the second Doctor Doom. Uh And you'll you'll know at the end of the story, he sends the Baxter building off into space, much like Doctor Doom did way back in, what was that, Fantastic Four Five? Five, yes. five, yeah. Five, yeah. And uh, the origin, of course, is taken directly from uh, Fantastic Four Annual 2 that was Jack Kirby, leading Kirby. And, uh, you know, Byrne expanding on it a lot more and showing us um, the origin of Doom as we really should have seen it all along, in, in my opinion. This is the best origin of Doom that you could possibly have to show why he is the way he is. And if anybody is going to make a Marvel movie, they need to look at this and tear it apart. And they need to make, if, if Marvel gets the race to Fantastic Four back, they need to use this to incorporate into the Marvel Universe and to bring Doctor Doom in there. Give him his movie before you do a Fantastic Four movie. Show Doom to be a three-dimensional, true monarch villain. And I think that's what this story does. It, it, it shows you everything that you need to know about Doom before they actually bring him back into the, the the comic book world here, thanks to the Beyonder. Yeah, 
I don't know if a Doom solo would work before you get a, a Fantastic Four. I don't. I could be wrong. I just don't. I just don't see that having much of an audience before you brought in. And I don't. And do you do a? Do you incorporate his origin into? Do you treat it the way you did First Class? You know, well that was kind of the the Magneto standalone movie that they rolled into First Class, where you get Magneto's origin uh, as a same time you get the, uh, the this relaunching of the X Men. So I don't know. I don't know well, if you could do you that. Know, the, the thing is, the the biggest problem that we have in our superhero movies is that we're not able to get compelling enough villains. We don't have enough compelling villains so far. Uh, on the Marvel side, okay, you've got Ultron, you've got Loki, and Thanos. Now, they haven't really fleshed Thanos enough to sit there and really make everybody afraid of him. They know that they should be afraid of him, but they don't know why. Well, right, he's just, okay, here's the bad guy. You know, that's, yeah, that's kind here's, of right. Yeah, here's the bad guy, he's coming up, he's coming to get us. Oh, now he's going to get the Infinity Stones, okay, here he's coming. But the thing is, is that we just don't know who he is, I and mean, when you look at Obadiah Stane, you look at the Red Skull, you look at aside from Loki, all the villains have been nothing more than a one-off that you're not going to hear from again. They haven't been fleshed out in any way that you can sit there and go, wow, that's a villain I want to look out for, that I've got to look out for. Well, comics have the advantage that you can it's it's more of a long story long-form storytelling that you can you're not trying to establish Look, a Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh was able to do with Loki in one movie what they haven't been able to do with all the other villains in multiple movies. It, it's, I mean, <laughs> it, it it should be simple and it should still be part of a formula. And Stan knows that. It's just the guys that are doing the movies, they're so concerned about meeting all the check marks that Disney's hitting them with that the villains aren't getting enough due. They're not getting enough meat. We were lucky with Tom Hiddleston, and we were lucky with, that we had Kenneth Branagh. Well, I would, I would argue that Jeff Bridges' is Obadiah Stane, uh, I've heard people say they don't think he's a very compelling villain. I, I think he's a great villain, because he's the kind of the villain and hides in plain sight. He's the... the... Yeah, but you, you know the thing is, you know, we didn't see that he necessarily died. At the end of Iron Man, it, 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 they could easily make it where he survived and he's oh, yeah. somewhere exactly. in the vault or, or, or whatever. But nobody's sitting there saying, hey, bring Stain back. And if Stain were to come back, half the audience would go, huh, who's this? All right. Well, and, it's, but is that is that a fault of, I mean, name Iron Man's big top five rogues. I mean, well, is it? Yeah, and that's that is, you know, the the thing is that his top five rogues are all either anti-Iron Man or they're uh, a uh, Asian stereotype that you really don't want to bring on screen the way he was, you know, done in the comic books. Right. I mean, some some characters just don't have a a character that a villain that can translate well to the screen that what that you don't have the benefit of having, you know, apparent five or six or seven appearances in a book to kind of flesh out. Right, uh, a, a person. You know, it's, if you think of think of Marvel and the Silver Age Marvel one, you were getting those the villains that it was. You know, look at Spider Man. The first, you know, six, seven, eight issues, it's a new villain every time. Pow, pow, pow. You know, but 
and they're they're kind of one note villains, but somehow that works. And I don't know if it works because of the time, as opposed to because that was you know now everything is is uh, well. If you look back at the original storytelling, if you look back at the original uh, Batman movies, starting with the Michael Keaton. They gave the villains as much screen time, if not more, than the hero. And I think they, they were kind of thinking, you know, Batman's kind of two-dimensional. And that's why you got uh, the Joker. Of course, you got Jack Nicholson, so you can use him for all he's worth, especially when he's getting paid as much as he is. When you got Michelle Pfeiffer and Danny DeVito, and you got a scriptwriter that just knows what kind of puns to throw in there for those those guys and you know they're, they're all the little the superhero tropes that we had back then they were able to use in that but they use the villains to the to the utmost and those right now are very recognizable villains the joker uh, as he, he's become now you know he's still it, it's got everybody expecting garland green do you know who i'm talking about there yeah. did you ever see, did you see car uh con air with Nicolas Cage? Yes. Steve Buscemi's character. Okay. That guy had the stink of crazy all over him so much because of the way they re- represented him that you were just waiting for him to do something really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what they've done with the Joker since Jack Nicholson, with Heath Ledger and with... Uh, uh, Christ, what's the guy's name? I know, I, I know the From guy. Suicide yeah, Squad. Jared, Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Yeah. They've created a Garland Green type character that you're just sitting there waiting for whatever he's going to do next. You don't know what it's going to be. My point in all of this is that Doctor Doom is a villain that has so much meat on the bone and so much pathos and history that they should make use of it. This origin. In this, it's called True Lies, uh, which, by the way, was six years before the movie, or <laughs> eight, actually seven or eight years before the movie. But um, it gives us a uh, a look into Doom's psyche that that we didn't get to see. And the best, most telling part of it is after he's had his accident in the lab. Um, it, everybody knows that it, you know Doctor Doom is at the same college as Reed Richards. The two of them are constantly arguing, and you know. Uh, but, you know, Richard stops by Doom's dorm and uh, is looking at his notes and he's telling him he's off by a few decimal places. And uh, Doom rushes him out and goes and, and, and goes to do his uh, experiment. And it goes horribly wrong, causes an explosion. Next thing you see, he, there he is in bed with the bandages on his head and the dean's, you know, kicking him out of school. And then what we see here is what we never saw in the Fantastic Four Annual 2 that Kirby did, but was actually how much damage was done to Doom's face right? by the accident. And it was a, a straight scar down from right below the eye down to the, the side. And it probably could have been easily taken care of by a plastic surgeon or whatever. But Doom smashes the mirror in that very famous pose. And then you see him going off to Tibet, finding the monks, not the ones that helped Doctor Strange and not the ones that helped Ra's al Ghul, not the ones that... There's a lot of monks in Tibet, aren't Monks there? are always helping somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But they fashion the armor for him, and he puts on the mask before it's even cooled. So it's basically destroyed his face even further uh, than, than what it was. It's amazing, though, because it kind of looks like Professor X there when he's getting the, ar- the, 
mask put on. Yeah, apparently he shaved his head. Yes. But that looks, it's, with that that kind of sound, you can just, that, that's such a painful, painful pain. Yeah. You can imagine you what that it, feels like. Do you know what it makes me think of? Uh, the, if you ever watch the TV show Kung Fu, mm-hmm. uh, they always show when Kwai Chang Kang, played by David Carradine. Oh, somebody picks up the... Picks up the, the the urn with the uh, smoldering stuff, and it's got the the imprint of the tiger and the dragon. So he gets those tattoos on his arm as he carries that. Yeah. Because he has to lift it off of the thing. It's it's actually a weight that when he opens it, it opens the door to outside, so he can walk the earth. And he goes out and falls into the snow or ground or whatever, and uh, he's got those tattoos on his arms that forever show him as the Shaolin priest. And uh, yeah, that's that's of course what I think of, and that's the sound I hear in my head when uh, when I read this. Now, the 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 beautiful thing about this is that uh, this is leading into the whole uh, hate monger uh, Doctor Psycho storyline, and what leads us into malice. Sue malice, yeah, mal- malice, yeah, and Sue turning into the uh, Invisible Woman, and she's got <clears throat> what I can only refer to as a woman version of a mullet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, this uh, is also that area when Johnny had that awful kind of bold mo haircut, whatever you call it. I, I never liked this way he drew his hair. Yeah, my nephew had that haircut, and uh, you know, I was like, man, I wish I could get my hair to look like that, just because I couldn't. Uh, of course, at this point in life, I think my hair was starting to fall out. Uh-huh. But yeah, it really, really sucked. Okay, it wasn't fall, it wasn't falling out on the back, but I was getting more of a receding hairline up front. So I didn't have hair going all the way across my scalp. It was, re- right. it was retreating. Yeah, I was getting more of a widow's peak. Oh, widow's peaks can be cool. They can be cool, but on me, they never were. <laughs> uh, and again, you know, my acne didn't leave until I was twenty-five, so I never have one good year. Oh. You know, uh, <laughs> now my I've got a uh, what do you call it? passport picture mm-hmm. that was taken in 87 before my first trip to Turkey. Now that right there is what I thought was my most perfect picture. I'll, I'll, it's, I think I've got it out on my Facebook page. You can look at it. I don't know why I gave it to them, but there it is <laughs> anyway. Um, but the beauty of it was that um, I remember looking at this book back then and really being just you know, so saying that Jerry Ordway has got to be one of the greatest anchors there ever was because he was doing this and Crisis and the Infinite Earths. And just beautiful, beautiful inks. Now, this, I guess, was before Crisis, wasn't it? I, I'm going to have to take issue with that because I don't think his inks are doing Burns' work any favors. But, I, you know, there are people that will sit there and say that Joe Sinnott does great work on his inks, but I, I don't agree with that. I've never been a fan of that. I like the... The phase here he was in where he had um, Jerry Ordway and Al Gordon and others, you know, doing inks. I, I knew that Byrne was changing a lot of things with what he was doing around this time. And you can tell because if you look at the very first page, there's a quote from Cicero. Mm-hmm. And so Byrne is getting into a part of his stage of writing where every story has some famous quote at the beginning and uh, not too far around here of course uh, he had that negative zone story where he did everything sideways mm-hmm. he was doing and some experiments yeah he was doing a lot of experiments when he went to the Hulk he did that top page bottom page two different stories that were supposed to kind of intersect there was a lot of experimentation and there was a lot of changes going on in his writing here 
And so having the, the different inkers come in and Jerry Ordway being one of I no, I really love his work. Um, I I would almost compare it to, to Terry Austin in a way. Now the thing is, is Terry Austin came in shortly after this and was inking uh, Burn on Superman. And I didn't feel that Austin inks on Superman were as good as Austin's inks on X Men. X Men, I, I agree there. I, th- I think there is a difference. I think, but it's but better. I, and, and, and don't get me wrong, this is not bad inking. It just doesn't. It doesn't quite look like Burn, and that's kind of taking me out of the story. Because hmm. I like I like Ordway's work. I like it uh, when he was doing Superman. I like his artwork, but maybe I like his art better than I like his inking. Or his pencil is better than like his inking. Yeah. It's interesting how young Reed Richards almost looks like Peter Parker. Well, at one point, it looks like he almost has a uh, Norman Osborn hair. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was noticing that, too. Hair. Yeah. And this and is Doc- also the... Oh, sorry. No, and Dr. Doom's got uh, uh, Superman's hair just brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is also the era when, if you look at um, uh, art, uh, the picture of Times Square... This is when Byrne was using actual photos yeah. as his backgrounds for, like, New York. I always liked that. I like it a um, lot. Because he was doing it. Mike Grell was doing it. I'm not sure who else was doing it at the time. But when both of them did it, I, I thought that it worked well with their with their art. Yeah, it's, it's a lot like Kirby when he was doing his collages, when he was experimenting with that in Fantastic Four, when he was doing some, like, weird uh, scene from outer space or a spaceship or something. He was doing some photo collage work. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, the other things that we were seeing in this, I, I mean, the, the all the New York stuff was really cool. Johnny with Alicia was, I mean, I never felt good about Johnny with Alicia. <laughs> I mean, this isn't the one that, that had the inf- more infamous scenes like him sitting there drinking coffee the morning after no. or when or when Ben came to the door, you know. Um, but it, it always made me feel uncomfortable. I always thought it was kind of a natural progression that they probably sh- something they should not have undone immediately. That well, uh, it, it they went along. I mean, Johnny actually got married to Alicia, though. Didn't she turn out to be a scroll? She turned out to be a scroll, and, and Alicia was I don't know where Alicia was. So then everything kind of reset when, of course, Alanya or, or whatever the scroll's name was, when she was revealed, and Alicia came back, and of course she hooked up with Ben again. So, but I think that was something that that could have. Let's sit, and Ben could have moved on to somebody else. It doesn't always have to be Ben and Alicia Masters. He doesn't have to be with someone who's blind. You know, somebody who's not blind can fall in love with him. Right. So. Yeah. Well, he got another thing. Yeah. Well, true, yeah. true. He got, yeah, yeah. yeah she- <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, the, the you, you can't mention this issue without actually mentioning the fact that they destroy the Baxter building. In that famous last page there. I mean, the Baxter building had been through a number of, of different things throughout the years. It had been, what, thrown up in the sky once before. It had been sucked down into the earth uh, at, at least one time, I know, uh, thanks to the Mole Man. And this this was it. This was like, you know, Enterprise and Star Trek Three getting blown up in space. That's true, because after this, we get four Freedoms Plaza. Yes. Yeah. But this was it. This was the end of the Baxter building. And uh, but I mean, to me, it was Doom's origin that 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 really held my attention more than anything. Um, 
when they started getting into the hate monger, psycho pirate, whatever story, I started losing interest because I've always hated the discrimination stories because I always thought they're they're always too heavy-handed. And even in this one, it was especially heavy-handed because you're dealing with people that, you know, sit there and manipulate emotions. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's uh, there. It's a story that's uh, it's easy to kind of push buttons for for certain topics, but which I'm surprised that in the one poster that you see where he actually writes. Yeah, what and he, we would, like, you I can't would never imagine. see that today. Yeah, no. I can imagine it got by. I mean, it's it's there's nothing wrong with it because it's it's proven. It's not proven a point. It's it's a, a natural. It's organically put into the story because a character that's in the story would do that. Right. It's just we, sometimes we're, we're so shocked when we see stuff like that. It's like, how can you possibly, or when you hear somebody say something like that, it's like, well, but that character would say that. I, you know, I, I kind of wonder if there was any back and forth going on about that particular frame. If, if they said, why don't you make it mutant or muty instead of instead of what they went, wound up writing? Well, I could, right, I, I can imagine, I can't imagine this guy by the comics code except they, they, their argument could be like, well, we're making a point that this is wrong, and that's what you know. That's something that kids, you know, it's good. You know, if they're worried about kids reading it, they're pointing out that this, you know, you can't have this attitude. It's wrong to have this attitude. Right. So that's a, that's a, I could see that as a learning point for you know but a learning opportunity for kids. If there was a common code authority today or standards and practices for oh, that, would, no, they would, would fly. Today th- there's no, no way, way they would let them do that today. No way. That, if that would, can you imagine the. Uh, how how bad uh, Twitter and the, the web <laughs> would explode if something like this happened. This is why Quentin Tarantino doesn't write comic books. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, you know, you know, be that as it may, you know, you know, it's funny. I, you know, as you're sitting there talking about the artwork, I did notice that there there was a a couple frames in this issue where, the, especially on page 21, where the artwork definitely wasn't the best. And uh, I see what, what it is you're not liking about it, but I, I, you know, the rest of the issue I really liked a whole lot. Yeah, and it's not, it's not, it's just one of those things where you explain. It's almost like a like a like a like a speed bump. You know, you're kind of ro- ro- you know driving along, and then suddenly something's not the same as what you were right. used to, and then it kind of throws you off. So you probably wouldn't, if I was reading these issues as as in sequence, I probably wouldn't notice it. But when you kind of jump around, you jump from. One thing is heavily, it looks like Burmese doing his own inks. This, yeah, it's just the, that change, uh, change in style. That uh, you know, it just, it, I, I don't, I don't want to come across. I don't like it. it it's just it, you prefer someone else. I prefer yeah. someone else exactly. I prefer his okay. own inks or somebody else. Now, since we already covered your X Men one, do you want me to grab the next one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the next one here is going to be Superman number nine. Number and this nine, is the one with the, it's got nine, the Joker on the cover. Oh, the, uh, but it's it's not the Joker story though that that I'm going on going to go on about. Now the good Joker story itself is fine, but it's the backstory, Metropolis 900 miles, that that makes this one of my top five. Mm. Now this was covered very very recently on another podcast, and I'm racking my brain to remember who it was. Whether it was uh, I think it was somebody on the Fire and Water Network, but this was. Just one of those stories that, okay, it didn't involve superheroes or supervillains, really. It involved Lex Luthor having a, a uh, what was the, golly, what was that movie with uh, Demi Moore and Robert Redford? 
Woody Harrelson. Uh, indecent proposal. Indecent proposal. Yeah, Lex Luthor giving an indecent proposal to a backwoods, you know, country bumpkin waitress because he thought she was hot. Basically saying, you come live with me, and you know, <laughs> you come stay with me for a month, and I'll give you everything you desire. And he just completely deconstructs her life from beginning to end. You know, the things that she did as a child her and her boyfriend and what you know whatever he's doing and all that he just completely tears her apart and says i'm going to go wait out in my car you know i'll give you 10 minutes you want to come and, and have a good month and come back rich come out and join me <laughs> and she just you know first she's talking to her co-workers and they're saying honey go for it come on who else gets a chance like this and then she goes and calls her husband and you know of course he answers the phone wally the whiz here you know, a mechanic at the garage. And you can see she's actually giving it some thought. And she and, and then her, her coworker comes and tells her he's gone. And Luther's sitting there in his car talking to – it's not uh, Mercy. It's uh, Cynthia. And she's saying, you waited a little bit longer, almost a whole 10 minutes. And he goes, this one needed the extra finesse, Cynthia, <laughs> the extra tantalization. She seemed a somewhat stronger moral fiber than some of the others with whom we played this little game in the past. But the result is the same. Jenny Hubbard will never know what her final choice would have been. And that question will torment her for the rest of her meaningless life. Now home to Metropolis, Cynthia. Back to Project Overlord. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, this right here spells just how horrible this guy is. And it, it gives you every bit of, of understanding his cunningness, his, his cunningness, his ruthlessness, and just how, to use a popular term, deplorable the man is. Well, I think it shows how his he feels he can control, with his in intellect and his wealth, he can control anything. And everything is at his kind of beck and call, and he can manipulate and control whatever, whatever yeah, he just, wants to. There are parts of the ant farm, and he's just tearing the legs off of the ants. You know, or tearing the, the wings off of a fly. That's what he thinks of them all as. They're insects to him. Yeah, they're just, they're just, and this is, as you said, this is like more of a game. It's not, it's, this is something he does maybe to, you know, divert his attention or to just uh, have fun. This is his way of, and it's it's a power trip. It's a head yes. trip and it's a power trip. It's all it is with him. And, yeah. and with Luther, it's always been about that. You know, I think that's been his, his, driving force between him and Superman is that Superman who is all powerful and Lex wants all power and sometimes I think it's also that he sees Superman as someone that you have all this power but you don't use it the way he would use it and that's what I think he's jealous of that that if I had that power this is what I would I would do with it maybe yeah but I mean everything about this story was uh, for lack of a better word, perfect. Yeah, it's a nice little character, little character piece. Yeah, very good character piece, and all the secondary characters are somebody you know. In fact, the the waitress herself just seems like somebody I know, and I, I could see you know people from my own life reacting the way you know to him the way that they do. Um, golly, it, it, you know this story just hits home on so many different ways, and I think that the. Uh, uh, Carl Kiesel's inks in this, of course, are, are are beautiful. I'll say even better than Ordway's. I think he's probably 
the number two anchor on on Burns' work next to uh, Terry Austin's. I agree work there. On the, X-Men. The, 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 the inking in this is much better than Ordway's. It's much more Burn-like. Yeah. But yeah, this is um, a, it's a beautiful. The the color is a little muted, but that may be. It's it's a lot of yellows and oranges. And taupe, yeah. Yeah. Tan and taupe. That maybe uh, maybe uh, maybe that's a conscious decision because her kind of showing bland, the drabness right. drabness of her life. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that teasing sign, Metropolis nine hundred mile. Like, you know, it's it's no. This is a brilliant bit of storytelling, and you know they, they got every one of the characters just laid in there perfectly. This could be a Broadway play. Or it could be a movie, just in and of itself, the, the the whole thing. You could make this like the conversation or something. You could stretch this out. It makes me think of uh, that Colin Farrell movie, The Phone Booth. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there you can, there's enough meat in this story that someone could actually take this and turn it into something bigger. You could do like a little thirty minute, almost I don't want to say Twilight Zone, but but that type of twenty minute, twenty two minute story where you could do it. It could be a play. It could be. This yeah. could be all set on stage. It could very easily be done. Very minimal sets. Because it's all about the acting and the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I remember the Joker story, but I don't really remember. This must not have made that much of an impression on me. But um, I'm glad it uh, kind of stuck with you because I. Well, you know, uh, this is actually one of Burns' favorite stories from from this era. He he really enjoyed. He really is proud of this particular story. So, uh, you know, it's like it's, it's one of those things where it's like I read that and I was like, well, yeah, I can see that. I can understand it. Now, this one, it caught my attention way back then and I never forgot it. And always, you know, one of those that, that I liked going back to from time to time. So it makes me wonder if, if John Byrne might sue the guy that wrote the book in Decent Proposal because, I mean, it's all right there. It's there, but I, I think that's – But then the book Indecent Proposal also, um, it had a uh, – a Jew actually making the proposal of a Muslim couple in the book. So there's, yeah, in the book. Oh. So it's 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 a lot a lot more different than what you saw yeah. in the Redford movie, and it definitely a lot more implications thematically and, and theologically. Yeah. In in the in the actual story, whereas this right here was just straight up, as well as Indecent Proposal was straight up, you know, as as a movie was just straight up the uh, Americanized version. Yeah. The the ring that Luther is wearing is that his kryptonite ring? That's the kryptonite signet ring that will take his hand and later and, on. Yeah, spoilers <laughs> away. And, you wow. know, it's funny, but you look at Luther here, and you can tell, you know, that this is, and and this is the the typical Luther that John Byrne had had envisioned: heavy set, uh, but very vain. That's why he shaved his head because Lois Lane said he was starting to look like Fred Mertz. <laughs> A lot of people didn't get that joke because, you know, it was in the 80s and Fred Mertz was from I Love Lucy. I got it, though. <laughs> uh, a lot of people today would get that joke. Yeah. Very hard to get it. Though I don't understand why he's got Cynthia instead of Mercy Graves there. Oh, he, may has a, he may have a whole slew of... Uh, but then Mercy... Was Mercy created for the uh, the uh, Adventures of Superman cartoon? See, now i got to look that up. I'm you have to look that up? I don't... I haven't watched enough of that to tell you. I'm looking it up. Let's see. Yeah, uh, she debuted in 1996 in the animated series. So, yeah. So, this character, Cynthia, actually precedes Mercy. But, uh, I mean, you know, the thing is, is you as you sit there and you look at the, the story itself, as far as the artwork goes, 
It is mundane. There's nothing remarkable about it, but it's beautiful. Very well done. Yeah, it's a great little. It's a great little. Uh, it's just like I said, it's just a great little character piece, and it yeah. and it just helps. And it's this is kind of a nice little backup that you don't. This would see out of place if this was in a in the middle of the story, or, or right. the whole book was it. But it's a nice little backup piece that just informs you more of uh, Luther's character. Right now, what do you here. think? Do you think she would have done it, or do you think she just really wanted to tell him off again? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, my I think as a reader, you want to th- think, oh, she wouldn't do it. Right. But when she finds out he's gone, she certainly storms out there to see that he's gone. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if she's, she is upset and she was going to go out there and basically give him the right act or, but I think it also, it's, what, it's exactly what Luther says. That is going to haunt her. She's, you know, well, it shouldn't haunt her, but it might. Depends how you know, strong a character she is. I, I remember when, when I was a little kid, we were driving uh, down towards the coast and uh, we were in some small podunk town, and we we're driving by some large billboard sign about a store, and it had it said something. I couldn't see it. My dad says, "Oh, what, what, what does that say? What does that say? What does that say?" And we got out of sight of it, and he goes, "That's for the rest of my life. That's gonna bug me." <laughs> what that said, and so about six months ago, I'm sitting there working on my dad's computer, and uh, as I'm sitting there talking, I say, "So, Papa." Does that still bug you? You never got to see what was on that sign? And you know what he said? What sign? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> he didn't. I said, you don't remember when we were driving down and we saw that sign? You said it was going to bug you for the rest of your life? And he goes, well, now I remember it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, that the kind of person that she is, based on what we've read, is that that would be the kind of thing, unless other people keep bringing it back up to her. That she's going to be able to put it out of her head, right? And maybe something that just that occasionally will kind of creep into the back of her mind, like, well, what? It's kind of that what if, you know, what if I had done it, this? It, it would only be an issue if her husband did not live up to his end of the bargain. True. If he cheated on her, or you know, whatever, hit well, her. In a way, uh, Luther may be doing her a favor. Maybe she's going to do something to uh, get out of this kind of dreary life. So maybe. In a way, he's going to inspire her. Hmm. I don't think he would like to like to think that, but yeah. And, and the thing is, is that horror writers that would follow after would probably sit there and say, "Yeah, let's turn her into a supervillain, pent on killing Lex Luthor." <laughs> you know, so Superman has to stop this woman from killing. Yeah, I can see that. Just some bad writer coming in and throwing that. Kind I of could see that. Him. That's the kind of a thing that uh, uh, Jeff Johns or or Morrison would, you know. Drag yeah, or, or <laughs> pull up this obscure character from you know and bring her back and say, oh well, so now she's a super villain and, and and that's the thing she's trying to kill Luther and Luther and Superman's gonna have to save Luther from her, right? Okay, well, so I guess that that says enough for Superman number nine. Okay, I love that cover though. It's a cool cover. Yeah. So what what do you have next? I have. And we're probably going to have to get through these last two pretty quick because we're approaching yeah. a marathon uh, story. This, I don't think, could be very long because we've already covered this on our show. This is Marvel graphic novel number 18, The Sensational She-Hulk, which we covered on episode 4 or 5. I'm going to lie and say, no, that was Omac, maybe 6. 
We've covered yeah. this. I can't remember. It's a shame. Yeah, I can't we, remember we did show. cover it on a previous show. Please see on the Two True Freaks Network yeah. on our past episodes. Yeah, we had Dave, uh, Dave Elliott came on from uh, Fantastic Forecast and uh, was our guest star on that. Uh, this is from 1985, uh, 72 glorious pages. It was 695. It's the big format graphic novels. Destruction of the Shield Helicarrier. That's right. Which is one of the reasons I. I like this story because one, it's got some beautiful burn art. It's got a big epic story. It's 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 bigger than a normal comic. It's kind of what they now later would call widescreen comics. It's big. Right. It feels big. Uh, a lot of great splash pages. There's some far-reaching effects into the Marvel universe. Exactly. Too. I was gonna say there's some consequences to this. It's got kind of a creepy uh, cockroach villain. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be scratching all night now thanks to this. It's, it's just, uh, uh, you know, and it, it's the story that gets her. It's got some more adult themes, so it's 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 written a little higher level than the the normal uh, books that were coming out. And, and it was also fantastic. Uh, not fantastic. It was also famously edited. Edited because of a uh, a bedroom scene that he had to cut. Side boob. Side boob. <laughs> Which is compared to what they show now is very very mild. Right. Uh, and it's the story that basically gets She-Hulk stuck in her current She-Hulk state. So permanently, yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a fun, fast-paced, a lot of action, a lot of humor. And it should be stated, this all was done before the She-Hulk t- uh, She-Hulk series, where she would broke the fourth wall. Right. So there's right. no no breaking of the fourth wall in this one. Or was there when she was on the Fantastic Four? Yeah, this is actually this is his first. Well, this came out. About the time he had brought her into Fantastic Force, those kind of run parallel, but um, right. it's just a, it's just a fun story, and I you know, I can't recommend it. You know, even if you're not a Burn fan, it's just a fun. You get to see a lot of you get to see a Shield Hella character, uh, Hella character, <laughs> carrier, uh, mm-hmm. crash and burn. Yep, and you get to see She Hulk made to strip. That's true. Gets you some kind of creepiness. Some um, they, they didn't a, give they didn't give her any jump rope though. No. No, so it's you know some little. Uh, but that guy did record it on video to watch time watch, and time watch again. No, no, again. So I said it's got it's got it's not uh, like a mature read type uh, graphic novel, but it's just a little a little notch above what you would get in the monthly books. It's cheesecake. Yeah, it is cheesecake. Yeah, but not for the sake of being cheesecake. It was cheesecake added into a good story, and and it was. Very well done. Again, uh, that I'm trying to remember was it Kim DeMulder. Yes, Kim DeMulder did the inking. Yeah, did the inking, and I thought the inking it reminded me a little bit of the way Kyle Baker did his inks, but not quite as uh, a refined finished as Kyle Baker it's does. Right, it has a little looser hand to it, almost um, fogginess, almost. Right, right, right. Almost a, not. A, I want to quite say quite sketchiness, but it's just not quite. It's an austere fogginess, is yeah. how I like to think of it. But that's you know, some, yeah. No, that's that's a that's that's a very good one, and, and that was that was one of my honorable mentions there. Oh, okay. Uh, though I, it, it, to be honest, you know, I was sitting there thinking, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, I had a hard time with that because I actually enjoyed the She-Hulk series that Byrne did more than the graphic novel, and uh, I did not actually pick any of them uh, for my top five though. Hmm. Uh, my next pick. Can I can I go to the next yes, pick? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh, was actually Superman, Batman, Generations, Volume One, Issue Four. 
1999. I, I I thought about doing some Batman the uh, you know I just stuff. Looking looking over the whole series, I was I, you know I've, I've just loved the idea behind that series, the whole generations series. But looking at all of the uh, stories in it, I think this this chapter right here was my favorite. You saw Batman with his final confrontation with Ra's al Ghul. You saw. Superman, you know, basically coming to terms with life after everybody that, that's been close to him is gone mm-hmm. and trying to find his place in the universe. And then you get to see the story turn back upon itself and you get to see them, Superman and Batman, before they were Superman and Batman in that little 19, uh, was it 29 or 1919? story where they show up uh superboy and robin robin and of course that is a throwback um to untold legend of the batman uh issue one which was john burns very first work at dc a, a three issue uh miniseries written by len ween that um john Byrne did i think the first two issues and then jim aparo did the rest but uh in that first story they show Batman or young Bruce Wayne as he's learning to become Batman dressed up as Robin and being tutored by another detective. I think it's Hardy Hill. And uh, so, you know, I had read of him doing it anywhere else in any other books over the years and then to see him bring it up here in Generations. And I was just loving every minute of that, especially them showing young Lois Lane in a very almost 1920s boardwalk empire kind of outfit and and just i think the the one thing that that made me enjoy this issue more than any of the others was that it had modern day sensibilities as far as the superheroes and the costumes were concerned but it also had the joy of being who they were batman taking up the the cape and cowl again from his son and becoming the Batman again. And it was just a, a gorgeous Batman. Superman uh, coming out of, you know, the 10-year, the what do you call it? The 10-year uh, stint in the Phantom Zone. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, revealing to his grandson that he's actually his grandson, uh, amongst other things. But, you know, we got to see, you know, the DC Universe as it would be represented today. We got to see Kyle Rayner as the Green Lantern. Though he definitely had more of a golden age green lantern appearance in there and the world was different than you know what we're used to in the comics but at the same time it made sense to me because generations as it was as you know as it started way back to the 1939 and it showed what superman and batman's universe would be like if time continued right if it progressed you know and everybody aged of course by the end of the the fourth story both batman and superman are essentially immortal yeah. And th- but this last chapter, you know, it had everything in there. It tied into so much within the DC universe. And it showed the characters in in the joy, the rapture, being who they were. There wasn't all the pathos of, you know, them in their normal career. I mean, we know, you know, what happened with Batman. We know that <laughs> his... Uh, his parents were shot in front of him and he becomes the Batman. But in those years later, of course, he has, you know, his son, of course, Robin, uh, Dick Grayson grows up and we see what happens to him in, in a previous chapter uh, with, with Superman. 
the ultra humanite or spoilers i'm sorry if i if i ruin anything here <laughs> but just the machinations that this guy put into place to wipe out the kryptonian's family and you see how he succeeds and yet how he fails but by the end of this story he's come to peace with everything and he's happy to be superman again just as bruce wayne is happy to be batman again well it's kind of come full circle yeah now of course generations two uh you know it, it delves more into stuff and it's also really interesting i really liked it generations three um i thought that that it was a little heavy-handed in how it kind of retreaded some of the same ground that that you know this first story did the uh the what dark side does in generations three compared to what the ultra humanite does in, in the first uh yeah, yeah i haven't read generations three so i need to get on that and well, it, you know, the, the the time structure is a little different because, you know, the first the first four books, Generations Volume 1, it moves 10 years in time, in 10-year increments. Mm-hmm. Generations 2 goes in 11-year increments. Now, you can actually watch, read Generations and Generations 2 intertwined because the years overlap. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Okay, so, yeah, you can read... 1939, 1940, 1949, and 1950, you know, and just keep switching back and forth in the books. However, Generations 3, I believe, moves like 111 years or something like that. It, it takes longer leaps as it goes. It's been a couple of years since I read it. But this one right here, Distilled Down, is the finest chapter in all of it, in my opinion. The only complaint that I had in it was I did not like the little black outline around Superman's symbol. That's it. That's my complaint. Oh, when he's uh, the early Superman or when he's the old Superman? When, when Superman is freed from the Phantom Zone, you'll see that his S symbol's got a black border around it, a very thick black border. Now, when they show him again in the far future, he doesn't have that black border. Oh, he's I got see what, I see what you mean. Costume. The costume yeah, that, that doesn't the silver and bronze age costume that we're very familiar with. That doesn't make sense unless that's just uh, a throw. The S looks a little throwback to uh, the way uh, it was. He was originally drawn. I don't understand why he's got that that thick black border. It doesn't right. Doesn't yeah, that, do that. that S like now the 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 other thing is that when you look at all the other generation chapters, is that you get to see. Superman and Batman as they were represented in each of those generations, you know, from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s and so on. And the things that really change on Superman are basically the length of his cape, you know, and, you know, of course, we saw a difference in the physical stature, but the the changes to the S shield all through. When you see in the first chapter, it's that triangle shield with a little S in it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he moves on to later and he's got more of the squinty eyed look that you saw in Captain Marvel, too. Um, but I think that's more or less the artists of the day really didn't put as much detail on it as we saw in later years when, you know, Wayne Boringer, Kurt Swan, and Byrne and others came on behind and they would sit there and draw the steely blue eyes or whatever. Yeah. But the early artists would just make black slits almost and it'd make Superman look meaner back then. And you saw that in that first issue, in that first story, that it made him look meaner. Of course, when they go back and they do the Superboy story, He's in the the better costume with the better S symbol. And Byrne recognized, you know, there's a lot of discontinuity in all this. But I'm just trying to represent the eras as they were represented 
Right, right. Comics. He's trying to capture the, the, the look at the time it was drawn. Right. In Batman, you see how his costume changes, you know, first to the, the actual bat wings. And then, of course, the with the, with the long ears and the kind of V'd in mask. And then he goes to the more stylized, you know, 50s mask where the ears are real short. Right. And it's almost a very Adam West look about him. And then when you see the later Batmans, they have the more traditional 80s Neil Adams look. Neil Adams, yeah. Those were the huge ears. Yeah. The blue, it goes to being blue instead of black. Right. And then, of course, when we see in 1999, he's in a black and gray costume. And it's just awesome. Though I, I felt that he should have still done the bat symbol with the yellow on it. But that's me. Something about the symbols is getting me in this. But again, that's, you know, I remember buying these when they first came out and just absorbing them like a meal. 1999, people were saying Burn was done. And here he comes and puts this out. It's obvious it's a labor of love. It's obvious how much that he really likes the characters. And I just wish they'd let him do this kind of work in either DC or Marvel. Yeah, he could almost do, just let him do like Elseworld type stuff or what ifs, you know, so it doesn't, of course, they're, they're, the continuity of Marvel is kind of so broken now that they're not, they're not a slave to it the way they used to be, which is why I'm really, I'm hardly buying Marvel now at all. Yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's my uh, fourth pick there. Okay. So what's, what's your, what's your, what's your fifth and final? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is also Superman. Mm -hmm. Superman number 22 from 1988. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was another in a a three story, three issue, you know, story arc. This is the the final issue. And it's also the final burn issue on Superman, which is one of the reasons that I kind of picked it. But also because it's a. It's a it's a it's a great ending to like the the one I started out with with the the Fantastic Four story. It's a great ending to uh, a three issue arc, and it poses some big questions and some there are some big consequences, and it kind of changes Superman, uh, the character, fundamentally. And I I think it's it, Byrne had some stuff to say on his last issue that he's going out on, and I think it's uh, the artwork is gorgeous. Uh, we get to see. Also, this kind of introduced me to uh, kind of like alternate alternate Earths because uh, I thought it was neat that this pocket universe that was created by the Time Trapper that had non-superhero versions of uh, Hal Jordan and Bruce Wayne and Oliver Queen, that they were just normal people right. that the, the three Kryptonians were killing until they, you know, spoiler, they... Well, I'll give a little synopsis. Oh, well, I'll go over my information first. Uh... Uh, writer artist is John Byrne. His letter is letterer is John Costanza, and the colorist is Petra uh, Scotis. Uh, it's called The Price, uh, 22 pages, and again, it's the end of a three-issue arc where Superman has been brought into a pocket universe by what he thinks is Lana Lang, right? Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. a yeah. Supergirl, Lana Lang, and it turns out she's really this kind of artificial. Uh, creation being that Lex Luthor is created from the pocket years because in this universe he is a good guy and the three Kryptonians General Zod uh, is it Zora and Quixel Quixel yeah it's kind of it's, it's, it's basically non kind of like non from Superman 2 they've been released from the Phantom Zone and they just 
and so they're you know the same power as Superman, and they're just wreaking havoc on this planet to the point where they destroy the entire planet. Every living thing on the planet is destroyed. So Superman is brought in to help defeat them from his universe. The, the big plot point of this issue is that he finally he manages to strip them of their powers using gold kryptonite because it doesn't affect him because he's from a different universe. Right. And they they swear that, oh, well, you know, yeah, you've taken away our powers, but we're going to get them back. And then we're going to find a way to your universe and we're going to uh, decimate that too. Well, since he's the only... At this point, the other, the remaining heroes of um, Bruce Wayne and Lex Luthor uh, and Oliver Queen uh, have all been just been killed by the, the three Kryptonians. And Supergirl has been, she was attacked by their heat vision. It's kind of rendered into her, uh, she's like a protoplasm or a kind of a proto-matter yeah. state. So she's kind of reverted to her kind of a, uh, like a Plato type state, but she'll regenerate. And Superman has to make some hard decisions and he decides that at this point they they're too dangerous to live and he exposes them to green kryptonite and basically kills them well i thought it was interesting how you know zod and quexel get into the little you know you know zod goes no they made me do it you yeah know, and quexel <laughs> chokes him to death yeah and then uh zora of course offers herself up because you know, what else yeah you know yeah they're, they're desperate <laughs> they're panicking can she do um I got to tell you, this is one that had me just flummoxed back in the day when it came out. I mean, I remember, and I had the same feeling here that I had at the end of the movie Man of Steel. I, I just, I couldn't buy it. And then at the time, I got angry. I got angry at John Byrne. And I said, this is the ego of John Byrne painting DC into a corner. Because he didn't get one on his book, and he left DC, and this is his revenge to them. And you know, I I, I couldn't see it any other way. You know, of course, years later, I, I I realized that's not the case. This is the storyline that he had put up. This is the storyline that they approved, and everything. He didn't surprise them with this. They knew this was happening. They yeah. agreed to it. Um, but you know, I I read it as different back then, and I I was I was not happy. Uh, because of it. But that being said, though, looking at this issue today, you know, he did the pencils and the inks on this. And it looks as clean and clear as if Terry Austin had done it, in my opinion. It It is probably some of his best solo work, next to, say, uh, Omek. Uh, I'll agree with that. I think that the penciling is a little... A little heavier than Austin, but it's not bad burn heavy that sometimes no. he can get kind of muddy. It doesn't right. look muddy. It just doesn't look as Austin's stuff just looks, I don't know, it's just his has such a crisp Christmas to it. But this is, this is still gorgeous. Um, yeah, this wish, is as good a burn inks on burn work that you're going to see. Yeah, and that might, he might even, because that was his last, uh, his last book. Uh, for them he might have maybe he'd taken a little more time or uh, whatever the, there's there's fantastic rubble in this and he loves yeah. to draw rubble there is great rubble throughout yeah. this whole this whole issue yeah no that is a fine issue to pick uh, it's one that's always gotten me in one way or the other um, this is one of those you pull out from time to time to read 
And it's, it's, you, it's, 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 an, it's an issue that will have a lot of fans arguing, you know. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it, still to this day, I'm like, no, Superman doesn't kill. Superman does not kill. But, you know, we it, it's it's on us now. We're stuck in it. Yeah. Superman is killed. And anybody that sits there and says Superman doesn't kill after Man of Steel, well, we, we can point him at this and say, well, well actually, he did. Yeah, he killed you know? long before. Now, is he killing now is the question the, in the rebirth. Is he – is Superman – has Superman killed yet? Or, uh, you know, is that – you know, the, are they making it the unbreakable law again? I doubt it. I'm I don't know. Sure I'm, not reading, I'm not reading rebirth, so – I'd like to. I just can't afford to right now. That's my – well, it's my reasons. I, I – I was reading the uh, All-Star uh, Batman that uh, <laughs> Junior Meter Junior was doing. I got two issues into it and realized I'm paying five bucks a piece for these, so I stopped buying that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it just, it just came to be with $4, $5 a book. It gets to be too expensive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I got you. Okay, so, I mean, that again, that's – and the cover on that is just awesome. And you never believe for a moment that he would do it until you actually read it. And it's done. Now, uh, again, looking at this book, years later, you look at this, and the layouts are so dynamic for the day. If I was to be buying art, this would be the hardest, the hardest ones to buy because you want two pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of because vir- virtually everything. It's not splash pages. It's all the panels, but the way they're intertwined and everything, it, the the storytelling is so amazing. And carries across so well across both pages. Right. And I use the term earlier widescreen. This has a very widescreen. Absolutely, yes. Feel to it. Because he is, uh, up until kind of the end, he is crossing the, the boundary, the, the the page break in every every layout. So, in fact, he's, he pretty much, except for one, he has. So, they all, you'd have to buy them in, in pairs. Yeah, exactly. All right, so that was your last one? That was my last one. What is your last one, sir? Okay, my last one's going to go back a bit, and we're going to look at Iron Fist number 12. Ooh, I don't think I've I've read that one. Oh, my. You know, the thing is, I've only read this one within the last year, and um, I just... I realized, you know, why this... This has become one of my favorites for a number of reasons, since we've been doing this show and since we've been going and looking at, at the work of John Byrne early and late and however far into his career, um, this one right here shows him at that very, very early stage of his career. And at the same time, it shows why he is, the, in my mind, the de facto number one comic book artist of the last 50 years why he is my favorite comic book artist of the last 50 years you know guys like Kirby and Ditko came before him but he was able to build upon their work and do so much and this right here is a great example of it now do you have a, a copy of it to look yeah, at yeah I'm, I'm looking at it right now I have, I have them all digitally and I've, I've been collecting them uh, when I can find them but yeah. I've kind of waited until I had them all to read them I haven't actually read any of the Iron Fist now, this is a collaboration between him and Claire, Chris Claremont, but it was early enough that uh, they were not uh, coming up with plot together, and Claremont was giving the full story, so Byrne considered himself an art robot. But even with him being the art robot, what you're seeing in this story, this is 
to break down his story, the uh, the, the previous issue, the Wrecking Crew, uh, the foes of Thor, have basically got Misty Knight uh, in their thrall. And basically, they've told Iron Fist, you need to go into Avengers Mansion and kill as many of them as you can, or we kill Misty. So Iron Fist breaks into Avengers Mansion uh, in the hopes that he might be able to convince them to aid him against the Wrecking Crew. And your opening page is, it's not the best picture of Captain America. It looks like there's something a little off, but at the same time, you're like, wow. This is a beautiful shot here. Um, and I, I have to give part of this to Dan Atkins, who's the inker. I don't think that his inks on Burns' work is, is that great. But again, this is very, very early Burn. This is you know his first comic book stint at Marvel. I didn't look to see what else he had done at this, at this particular point in time. I think he was still doing some Charlton stuff, finishing up Doomsday Plus One. Or, I think so. Uh, and, and so... As you read this story, you might see different areas where the midsection is not as well-defined or well-drawn. And the inks are a little more heavy-handed on the, the faces and such. But uh, you get one of these, you know, this thing, first thing, he breaks into the Avengers mansion, and the first person he comes across is Jarvis. And while he's doing that, uh, and, and part of the reason why I picked this story is because it's so poignant for today. While he's got the bit going on with Jarvis, Captain America is basically surfing the internet and learning about Iron Fist. And he's getting a Wikipedia version that is basically written by someone that's got a bias against him. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, <laughs> what is it, 75? No, 1977 when the story came out. But it reads like, like Captain America is actually surfing the net, trying to find stuff up about Iron Fist, but he's found stuff from people that hate him. So he's only getting the the the, the bad side of the story. You know, he's not getting the full story. You know, Iron Fist was actually uh, uh, suspected in two different murders. Sure, he's the, the yeah, kung, kung Fu Killer. He calls him. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he'd been exonerated in both cases. But the way new f- newspapers go, you know, you get the story one day and then you get a retraction. Yeah, but the retraction is going to be the back page. Exactly. It's going to be on page six down in the corner. You know, so, you know, all cap to, all caps got to go off is is a basically rumor and conjecture. And he thinks that Iron Fist is a killer. So when Iron Fist comes in, he runs into Jarvis. Jarvis goes to run for help because they don't apparently have any kind of intercoms. And he winds up falling, um, and, and Iron Fist basically dives and catches him and rolls with him down the stairs, taking the brunt of the fall himself. And Byrne does this in a very good, uh, I like, I've always liked how he's done this half, um, half drawn, half colored uh, motion effect. Do you know what I'm talking about yeah, here? He's, he's, a, he's rolling with him down the stairs. It's a technique and, you would see in Spider-Man a lot, which showing him jumping from... And Daredevil as well. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, he gets Jarvis down and, and, and he's checking to make sure Jarvis is okay, thinks he's just fainted. And then on the next page, we get a full page spread of Cap standing over Jarvis and Iron Fist. And Cap's pissed. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a gorgeous bit of art, but it's a little off. You know what I'm saying? It's not, yeah, it's not quite polished. The, what's funny is Iron Fist, his hand looks, it's a very Ditko hand. 
Yes. The way he's got his fingers. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, but, uh, you know, so Iron Fist and Cap get in a fight. You know, it, it's funny because you don't think of anybody being a greater combatant than, than Captain America, but Iron Fist is supposed to be the greatest martial artist on the planet. And Cap still is, of course, you know, the, the supposed to be the greatest single combatant. Iron Fist it says that his moves are basic, but still Cap is a force to be reckoned with. And all the while, the wrecking crew is sitting there saying, you know, you better, better not double cross us or they're going to kill his lady friend. And Iron Fist gets to the point where he actually uses the Iron, Iron Fist, Fist on Cap. But, of course, he hits him right on the shield. Now, the shield is supposed to kill any impact. And yet, Cap goes flying back. I thought that was interesting. And then Iron Fist basically decides to stand down when Cap uh, hits the thing behind him and it starts falling down on him. And Cap actually has to save his life. And they talk for a few moments, and Cap all of a sudden realizes, oh my gosh, we're in a Marvel comic book. Right, we're yeah, two it's... heroes, we had to fight, <laughs> but now we got to join together and fight the bad guys. And the, uh, the rest of the story, of course, is Cap and uh, Iron Fist uh, setting up a trap and then fighting the Wrecking Crew. And I really uh, enjoyed the various different dialects that they assigned to Bulldozer and Piledriver um, in here. As well as as the record now, of course, uh, what's the guy with the wrecking ball? What's he uh, called? It's not the power driver. It's um, but he's got um actually a degree in like electronics engineering. He's he's re- actually rather educated. Thunderball. 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 Yeah, he he's actually educated as opposed to the others that are all country bumpkins and you know the the prison guys. But you know they they. The, the thing about this story that kind of bothered me is that, you know, I remember reading about them in Ohatmu, and uh, the only other story that I've actually read of with them in it is Secret Wars. That was my introduction to them. Yeah, and the thing is, is that what Ohatmu said is that none of them were capable of lifting more than 10 tons, so they were basically on the same power level as Spider-Man. Yeah. But these guys talk like they're on the same level as Thor. Now, I could see maybe the Wrecker with his little enchanted crowbar might be somewhere where he could give Thor a, you know, a tussle, but I don't think any of the others would be anywhere near strong well, I enough. I thought the, the Wrecker, when he was at the Enchantress, had enchanted his crowbar and gave him all the power. And then I he, believe that's correct. He decided to share it with his buddies, so I thought he, he, he was more of a division, so that ah. he, you know, his power might have lessened because he, he's kind of parsed it out to these uh, other three guys. Yeah. So that maybe they have a fourth of what of power he used to have. Right, right. But what we get to see through the rest of the story is Cap and Iron Fist tearing apart the Wrecking Crew. Two guys that, aside from Iron Fist's actual Iron Fist power, are nothing more than almost normal people. I mean, Cap, of course, has got the Super Soldier Serum, but he's nowhere near as powerful as we see him in the movies. Iron Fist, aside from the Iron Fist himself, he's just a martial artist. And yet these two guys take apart the Wrecking Crew. And a very funny reveal at the end is Misty Knight breaks open the doors to what uh, they refer to as a danger room uh, that they use to fight against the Wrecking Crew with. I thought that was kind uh, of... Xavier, uh, I hope Xavier finds out about that. There's going to be a lawsuit. <laughs> well, I, I seem to remember a lot of cross-pollination with the technology between Xavier, Richards, and the Avengers. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, most of the, well, most of the Avengers stuff is going to come from Stark. Right. Uh, and I mean, your tech's all going to come from either 
Stark or Richards or Hank Pym. This this looks just like the X Men Danger Room to me. Maybe they, maybe they lease it. It's like uh, <laughs> <laughs> they lease the yeah. uh, programs from him. But you know this this right here was a great example of uh, a book that could take a nobody nothing character and turn them into something uh, really really cool in the Marvel universe. And what better way to do it than to bring Captain America? And if you and if you know anything about this book, this book had crossovers with the X-Men. It mm-hmm. actually introduced the character of Sabretooth in the Marvel comics. Yeah, then he jumped into, well, Misty Knight and, and the, uh, the, the Sisters the of the Dragon. Of, daughters of the Dragon. Daughters of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah those are the ones that, you know, are, are with them. They go up against Alpha Flight. So, the, yeah, you're right. There's a, a bunch of um, uh, back and forth. Which is, I thought was, when I first started reading Marvel, which I thought was wonderful because you'd read... They used to read little pocket books, and they would make comment like, "Well, this—if you like this, this happened in this book." You know, I'm like, "Wow, yep. they're referencing all these other books. It's all one big world." Yeah, yeah. What I think is interesting uh, also is that you know, Byrne never really studied martial artists. In fact, he only would would draw things as he was told to by Chris Claremont, as far as the combat goes. Um, he did look at some. But not a whole lot, so you don't get a really good idea of what kind of martial arts. You know, it's supposed to be like kung fu, but you really don't get kind of an, an idea of it at all. You just see a lot of flip, flipping and punching, and, and he's it just a lot of his, uh, you know, that sideways kick and his hand, you know, yeah. like a karate pose. And but like again, this is this is early burn, early Mar. Uh, I mean, Silver Age Marvel goodness, or you know, at that perfect time uh, where where everything was just starting to come together. And, you know, this would lead into runs on the X-Men, on the Avengers, uh, putting them right there smack dab in the middle of the Marvel Universe. And this is the early step. And it just, I, you know, it's like I hadn't read this. So I only got to read it within like the last year or so. And it really took me back, even though I'd never read it before, it took me back to that time. And I think that's one of the reasons why, why I love it. Now, I, I think I would, would have picked a different anchor to go on this uh, from back then. But, you know, again, I, you know, it's, it's still uh, good fun reading. Again, it's one of my top five right now. Now, yeah, yeah, will it be in my top five next year? I don't know, but uh, I sure did love it. And yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. Yeah. I'm kind of getting, uh, I, I always liked the uh, early bronze age stuff because it, it is like a little time capsule and kind of it yeah. has that feel of what was going on at the time the books were written. That's why I'm, I've started reading some, Power Man because I watched. If you watched Luke Cage, oh yeah, watch it. We just recorded um, a uh, five-minute freak on it uh, with Scott McGregor and a group. Uh, even Beth was involved in that. Uh, my wife. We uh, we recorded it last last week, uh, Sunday night, I believe. I don't know when Scott's going to get that out, but uh, really, really enjoyed. I've I've enjoyed every one of the Marvel uh, Netflix series, and this one was no. It, 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 and it spoke to me about all of the, the stuff that Vernon Claremont did in the Hero for Hire or the Luke Cage series and when Luke Cage and Power Man and Iron Fist came together. Yeah. So I you know maybe want to go back and look at all of these again, especially uh, using uh, Scarf, the uh, the cop that, that was partnered with Misty. Yeah. Because uh, he was a big part of the Iron Fist series. Yeah, see, I'm not, I'm not, I'm other than Misty Knight, because I've, I've seen her in other books, but uh, I'm, so I'm just kind of just starting to get my feet wet with him, because I don't know anything about Iron Fist or really uh, Power Man. And I'm really looking forward to the Iron Fist 
series when it comes out. Yeah. It looked pretty good. Yeah, and and you can they they pulled from Burn in that that Power Man series. I I, I had no doubt. Um, but they that that whole Luke Cage series was just a treat, and I I, I can't wait for more. I like it better than Jessica Jones. Really, really, that's high praise. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of people are putting a smack dab in the middle of the Jessica Jones Daredevil, you know, saying it was good stuff. You know, the, 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 apparently Daredevil season two seems to be the top of the heap. I, I, season two is really good. Yeah, but I put Luke Cage on right on par. I mean, they are right side by side. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just think they're hitting on all cylinders right now. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to the Punisher series too. Yeah, like that's yeah. gonna be. They just got some just good stuff rolling out. So that was our top five and top five. Any honorable mentions? I mean, there would be some of the ones that I mentioned. Maybe the the first, if I was going to cover runs, I'd cover like the like the Fantastic Four. I'd cover that whole three issue. Uh, mm-hmm. The Superman, I'd cover the whole three issue. Uh, I mean, of course, there's easy stuff like the Dark Phoenix, um, the the Star Trek Romulans stories. Just that right there is is going to be one of my favorite favorite runs. It still didn't, you know. I mean, it, it, there wasn't one single book I could sit there and pull out and say this is the best part of it because I enjoyed the whole the whole thing even the balance of terror chapter yeah I like it. well it's the Star Trek's kind of like uh, the his next men I enjoy the next men but next men kind of leaves me a little flat yeah I, exactly if you, yeah, it leaves me a little cold I, I, I enjoy it but I don't feel the need to go back and revisit them I wasn't invested enough in any of the characters that I was concerned about what was you know what happened with them you they know? weren't as they was, weren't relatable they're not relatable they're not and I think he was trying to write him as because he was trying to write superheroes as what if they really existed like you know in, in a more of a real world setting but the only one that you possibly could relate to was the speedster when you were younger yeah and and the things they did with him like when they took his virginity or, or whatever and all the things that, that went along with that well but, there wasn't you know, the, Though the next men stories aren't, there's no fun to them. They're they're well drawn, they're 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 reasonably well written, but there's not a lot of fun there. Yeah, well, it's too serious, and the science, the seriousness of the science and the reality of it, of the isolation you'd feel being one of those characters. Yeah. Uh, especially, um, what's her name? I can't remember the girl, the invulnerable girl. Oh, the girl with the diamond skin. And- and her hair is razor sharp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember any of their names. The only, the only name I remember is Jasmine. That's uh, the but, young one, yeah. Yeah, the gym, gymnastic uh, lane climb one that got pregnant. Going back to all this. No, no, it, I really enjoyed doing this this uh, top five list. I thought it would definitely bring up some conversation. I think that, that we have room to do other top five lists. And if you guys have some ideas... Yeah. If you if if you want to give us some ideas on some top five lists or uh, just another subject for a discussion show, and, and we have no problem bringing someone else in on the discussion as well. Um, we've got a lot of friends, and a lot of them are very well uh, read on the on the subject matter that we've been discussing lately. So you know, let us know what you think. Please write us either at uh, gotta get burned at gmail.com. Or put on a Facebook page, which is put a post on our burn. Facebook page. Yeah, uh, you know, in, in response to the uh, the episode drop, as as uh, as we put it up, 
you know, just let us know, you know, what subjects you'd like to hear us to discuss. Or just um, give us your top five. You know, maybe you want to respond and give us your top five single stories. And we'll, you know, we can always read those when we do the next, you know, the next episode. Just... Yeah, we, we have a couple letters, uh, e- emails from John Hyatt and others, I think, that we need to, to read. But we're not going to catch to it tonight because it's almost 1230 in the morning. Yeah, I have is... to get up at six. I know. I got to get up at 530 because we have to get up and walk the dog and take her to take care of it. Uh, this will be probably a, a three hour show, but it's it's a good meaty show to get back into since we've been gone for so long. So we're going to give you like a supersized uh, big fat episode to sink your teeth into because we've uh, you know, come back in the air. So, But I think we've uh, mentioned all we can. Uh, just drop us a line if you want to. We will definitely try to get some episodes out quicker and don't forget if you plan on buying any of these comics if you're going to buy albums books movies whatever go to choochoofreaks.com and use the amazon link that's on there uh, keep helps keep the lights on well, basically you know, allows us to do what we're doing now right it doesn't cost you anything extra just go ahead and bookmark that link you know and, and use it all the time that's what i do Cool. Alrighty, so and we have no idea what you're buying out there. So if you're buying porn, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry yeah. about it. We don't know about it. Your name's not associated with it. We don't know what your, uh, <laughs> which I always forget to do that. I buy stuff on Amazon, like, and I'll put it in my basket, and then I realize, oh, I have to back out, go to Choo Choo Freaks, go to that link, and then go and then buy my stuff because sometimes I forget, like, oh, I was bought that, I should have. Uh, yeah, I've got that bookmark now. So any time that I want to go to Amazon, it's always going through that link. That's cool. So, so I, I just to set that up. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go and I'm going to get some sleep. All right. And me too. And uh, we will, we'll be back on the air sometime. Hopefully yep, sooner. Probably, not probably later. a little, yeah, probably sooner rather than later. But we may have two, these two episodes kind of hit. We've got another one that Brian's work on. I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but uh, I'll we'll, see what I can do about getting it, getting it done we'll, this week. We'll, we'll help you get it out. Now, I'll edit this one. So we may have two that kind of hit back to back. Um, to get us back in the, uh, the groove so people haven't forgotten about us. Like, where was that show about those two guys that, you know, talked about that one guy and now they've, uh, you know... Are we really that poorly talked about? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we're talked about at all. I, I'm, I'm sure someone's talking about us. <laughs> Somewhere. Those well, third-degree burn guys. Yeah. Well, we do this because... You know, we do this for ourselves. We do it because we love to do it. So hopefully, it's you know, if we could just share that with somebody else, and that makes it worth it. Hey, thanks, Tim. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank Good you night. Guys. And Good thanks. night. Have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number 3, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Two Two Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number 3, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows.
Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn.